Hello and welcome to Coffee and Psychosis, a podcast which has nothing to do with coffee. Hope you're all well, whatever well means to you. Before we get into this episode, I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, apologies, it's taken me so long to get around to doing another episode. I'm still alive, as you can tell. And secondly, thank you for listening to what is out there so far. I've had lots of lovely emails and tweets, which of course is very nice. It's good to know people are listening. It would probably be better to know if people were listening if I were doing the podcast by myself. Because then I'd just be talking to myself. And, well, I guess we all know how that story goes, but that is kind of what I'm doing now. So, well, how about Christmas? It's Christmas time. Yes, yes it is. The other day I walked into my house and I found an orange tied up with string which I thought was kind of strange. I thought about whether or not someone had taken the fruit hostage, maybe. I was fairly confused. Then I thought, hmm, tying up fruit seems to be a really good way for people to think you're crazy. So I asked my girlfriend about it and why there was a piece of fruit tied up in the kitchen. And it transpired that this piece of fruit was becoming a pomander. It was in the process of becoming a pomander. Pomander. Which apparently is some kind of medieval French thing. You get an orange, tie it up, stuff it decoratively with clothes, and then you hang it in your house and it smells nice. I'm sure there's a little bit more to it than that, but that seems to be the basics of it. So just to let you know, really, um, people might be doing things at Christmas that seem kind of weird. That seemed kind of weird to me. Tying up a piece of fruit. But, you know... There's people, they're chopping down a shitload of trees, wasting a shitload of paper by wrapping presents. Just uh, thinking about it, it's almost, it's almost kind of like Christmas is a way we concentrate all of our energy on destroying the environment. Just one kind of final push at the end of the year. Get them stats up. But I guess it's okay because, you know, lots of people are doing it, so it's okay. Anyway. On we go. <laughs> you wrote this great school report where it's like, on the surface, Jason appears to be quite a nice, polite, and pleasant young man, but um, he's like, he called me like a duplicitous master of lies. <laughs> <laughs> really like to think about how, um, like being 14, 15 years old, and having weed, and wanting to smoke it, but not having any Rizzlers can transform like a team of 14 year olds yeah. into like advanced engineers yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no one has more ingenuity these guys should be getting jobs at NASA do you want me to introduce you or do you want to introduce yourself uh you can introduce me it's hard to introduce yourself it is. isn't it yeah okay so hello I'm sat here with Jason He's a person, he is, or was, a service user. Now he's flipping the script and clinical psychologist in training. That's right? Yeah, that's right. So, how did you find the service? <laughs> how did I find the service? I find it funny. The the whole, there's all those sort of uh, debates about what to call people who use mental health services or have some sort of mental health issue, isn't it? What, what, do, you, what do you think of all that? Because we never say, oh, hello, service provider, yeah. do we? I I call myself a service user, but um, I think my story... I like the word mad. I like the word mad a lot. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, It's more of a human word 
also it kind of gives people pause as well when when you just chuck it out there um i told my supervisor on my current placement i said to him i think going bonkers is probably the best career move i ever made and um and there was just this complete paralysis yeah. in our conversation yeah. from that point forward. And I really enjoyed it. It um, really kind of flipped the power dynamic for a moment. Yeah. And it was, I think, the, uh, the the Mad Pride movement talk about using how, how madness is the only way um, that some people can assert power over the structures that exist. I really buy into this. I really value using it. But yeah, like, how was the service is an interesting question, because I think my story <laughs> is mostly about dodging services. It's like a restaurant. Yeah. How was the service for you this evening? Yeah. <laughs> How was the meal? Is everything yeah. to your tastes? What's your sort of biggest gripe with it? My biggest gripe with services as a service user, there was definitely a stage where I should have probably been hospitalised and nobody caught that. In fact, I was able to evade services completely. But then I have interesting thoughts about this as well because at that point, if I'd, if I'd gone into services that had been psychosis services and I think they can quite reliably ruin people's entire lives, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't know if I'd have had a better time or worse time. I mean, I guess where I'm at now, I'm glad it never happened. But the services I've actually used are... Uh, I had a problem with panic a few years ago, and I self-referred to an IAPT. Ooh. Yeah, and that was... Um, <laughs> that was something. Uh, wasn't wasn't what you wanted it to be? Not the first therapist. I ended up, I en- ended up walking out of that and not Ooh, going back. Really? Yeah, she called me James. Uh, which was kind of the last straw. Yeah? Oh, um, what were the first straws? The first straw was when we were sat in a session together, and I'd spent a good deal of time. Uh, luckily, you know, one of the benefits of IAPT, uh, the way it's currently funded and resourced, is that you have so much time to think about why you're going in between referring yourself and actually getting <laughs> to see someone. So I'd spent quite a bit of time kind of carefully reflecting on why I needed an IAPT service. And then I showed up, and I had all these ideas, and I had all these thoughts, and... You know, I'd, I'd really come to some conclusions about what happened to me and why I'd been there. And I got to talk about those for about ten minutes before I was stopped. I was stopped and I was very firmly told. It's like, okay, Jason, and that that all sounds very important, but we're, we're here to talk <laughs> about what's going on now. I was like, that that is what I'm talking about? Yeah. In other words, we're here to talk about what I want to talk about rather than what you want to talk about. Absolutely. I do. I think IAP services get a bad rap. I, I think... In general, they're staffed by incredibly passionate and compassionate people who are labouring under a system that is, yeah. you know, the, the only people it's more unfair to than them is the people trying to use the service. Yeah, and it's something about the... Uh, so when I've spoken to people that have to deliver that sort of intervention, as they say, they feel fairly restricted by what they're allowed to talk about or the model that they have to work with. Mm. And always... It, it's, it's not the type of therapy, is it? It's the relationship you have with the person delivering it. Yeah, yeah, I believe in this. And it yeah. sounds like you didn't have a very good relationship. <laughs> not with that one, no. Um, I got another one afterwards, and she was great. Um, I, I basically went in and tried to do exactly the same thing. Um, I've actually, I've, I've talked about this with my cohort previously. I told her this story. I told her this kind of narrative that I'd been coming up with to make sense of why I was there. And and I kind of told it, and I couldn't look at her while I was speaking. I just had to had to get it all out. And then when it was done, the room was silent. And in the back of my mind, I was like, you, you're going to look up at her right now, and she's not going to be paying attention. And, uh, and I looked up, and she was crying. I know there are plenty of people that wouldn't work for, but for me, I was like, yeah, right. We can do, we're going to do some really good work in this room. I really bought into her in that moment uh, and the way she handled that as well which was 
we we never talked about the fact she was crying. Like it it was her reaction. She didn't apologize for it. She didn't make it about her. She didn't do anything like that. It was just okay. This is where we're at, and we're gonna move forward from here. There'd probably be some supervisors of that person thinking, "Oh, that was a really bad move. You're crying there, right?" Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's quite an odd thing, isn't it? Because it seemed to help you quite a lot. Yeah, I mean. I think this thing you said where it's just about this relationship, yeah, I think that's exactly it, and I'm sure there are plenty of professionals out there who are generally quite bad at forming these relationships, yeah. but I think the reality of it is that, you know, we, we all we'll make friendships and we'll form relationships with different kinds of people that suit us, and, and this is true of going into therapy, is, you know, you've got to meet people you just don't click with, um, and, and what we have at the moment is an absolute lack of space to acknowledge that and say, oh, actually, I'm not getting on especially well with this person. I don't think we're a good fit for each other. Maybe we should think about transferring to a different therapist. And, and I think it, it's so important to be able to do that because at the moment what it looks like is people hanging on and doing therapy that may not necessarily work for them and then needing something else. Yeah, and then when something doesn't work, it's... Uh makes you feel even worse about your situation as well doesn't it so it's not really fair there should be a way you can sort of try before you buy maybe hmm. yeah let's rewind though what's the narrative you you spoke of what's your story what make me cry <laughs> yeah that's um if you could edit that laugh out by the way that was quite embarrassing no that's um, a good laugh laughing's good yeah <laughs> so i went to a grammar school what is a grammar school briefly so a grammar school is a really great old-fashioned concept, and I think the current government loves it, and they're trying to bring it back. Um, but when I was a teenager, there were only a few counties left that still had them, and I was lucky enough to be in one of those counties. And You say lucky... I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought so. So you, you get to 11 years old, and you go to take an exam, and all of your family's hopes and dreams hinging upon you well, certainly mine were you have to um, take an exam to get into the school yeah the 11 plus exam wow um, and your place in the school is determined by your performance on this exam it's mad actually as a practice like I, I ended up going to school with people who had like personal tutors coaching them for the 11 plus 11 year olds get them while they're young get them into yeah into competition and uh, and seeing how their money can, can buy them a future so yeah you, you go and take this exam and if your score's high enough you get in the school, and my school school was high enough. But weirdly, this is this is very surprising. Uh, it turned out that rich kids were better at getting into the school than poor kids. Oh, I'm very surprised. It's shocking, isn't yeah. it? Um, as, as we live in such an obvious meritocracy, where you just have to work hard enough and like, yeah. pull yourself up by the, your bootstraps, and you'll be fine. But but weirdly, mostly rich kids who are good at pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah, better boots maybe. Yeah, better straps, easier <laughs> straps to reach. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they had this this practice at this school where you could uh, you could you had to buy the uniform and you could buy the blazer from the school, which I think cost about two hundred pounds in fifteen year old fifteen years ago's money. Or you could buy a badge from the school, a patch, and you could go and buy a blazer from somewhere else. Mine came from Georgia Astor. You know, your mum would stitch the patch on for you. What? That's a sensible move anyway, though, because you save. what was it you're saving, like 150 quid yeah. in 15 years ago money? So, I mean, if you want to get rich, that's a good money-saving thing, right? You'd think so, but, yeah. but again, weirdly, weirdly, the rich kids... Yeah, where were... did they make their money from when they're making such poor financial decisions like that? I don't know. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's almost like 
one one of the things we do when we have money is uh, spend a lot of it just trying to show everyone that we've got it. So yeah, you you could spot the kids from working class backgrounds because we all had something stitched on on our lapels. You said earlier, a bit like Star of David, it's, which it's exactly like a Star of David, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel. Are oh, there other forms of like the Star of David, right? It's like the the Mark of Saruman almost, isn't it? Is there other versions of that? Um, down I know the ages? gay people yeah, um, yeah. in the Holocaust, they, they have purple? a pink star. Pink, yeah. yeah. Almost. It's almost like the final insult, isn't it? Giving gay people a pink star. Yeah. It's like pink's feminine for some reason, and femininity is degrading according to society, and yep. being gay has something to do with femininity for some reason. So yeah, these... These kids, the normal kids at school. <laughs> You're the normal kids, really, though, right? Well, not in the school we went. No. Uh, on the street we were, but not in the school. And uh, they could they could spot us just by looking at us. <laughs> and and that went, you know, it was an all-boys school as well. So you've, oh, you've really? Got, yeah, you've oh, got... Oh, that changes everything. Yeah, a bunch of 13 to 18-year-olds all stuck in one building. And, uh, and they, they can spot the poor kids at a glance. And that went about as well as you'd expect. Yeah. I was quite overweight. Uh, when I told you this story earlier, I said I was really fat, and this is an interesting thing I do, because I looked at pictures of myself uh, a while ago from this time in my life, and I remember myself being obese. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the physicality of being obese. I remember the way that body felt, and that's that's not how big I was. I wasn't nearly that big. But, you know, if it happens to you, it's true, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, more or less, yeah. What is true? Yeah, that's what you remember. Um... And yeah, I was, a, I was a really shy kid as well. Like my, my parents never really had many friends and I never watched anyone be particularly social. I didn't especially know how to do it. Yeah, it didn't didn't go down very well. I really liked things like reading and learning. That's what I know. That is strange. Sense. Yeah. Well, what did you like learning about at that point? Just stuff. I Anything. liked history a lot yeah. at that time and English. I really liked English literature and stuff. I was always reading books. I buy books now and don't have time to read them. It's yeah. really sad because I just have all these all these books I need to read. It's hard, yeah. You've got to do loads of reading for your course as well, so how are you going to find yeah, no, the time to actually do it for fun? So you were singled out? Yeah, yeah. With a single, mark on your head? Singled out with a mark on my chest. A, a bounty. <laughs> yeah. And um, How did that go then? I was bullied pretty relentlessly. Yeah. Um, didn't have any friends, really. It's a weird thing when you're when you're that age and you're in that kind of social system as well because there are all these other kids who are getting relentlessly picked on but you don't want to be friends with them because you're your subject then it makes you more of a target. Yeah, and and if you asked me at this time as well, you know, why why was I being targeted? I could have told you because I was fat. These other kids were kind enough to remind me every single day. But, <laughs> but, but as as only you know, children could. Absolutely, but not only was I fat, but uh, this this made me less of a human. Um but you know, there were, there were these other kids and I didn't piece it together until I was a bit older that we were all kind of the poor kids. And there was there were some of the poor kids who were very very successful, like my, most of the ones who were good in a fight uh, or good at sport or stuff like yeah. this where you know, they they had ways of breaking the glass ceiling in social terms and and uh, and becoming more popular. So yeah, I mean, there are a couple of nice things that I'm able to say about myself. When I say that, I mean... Just like, a couple. Yeah, in the grand scheme of the yeah. entire universe, there are like two or three nice things. What like, would they be? Uh, well, one of them is that I'm smart. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to talk that about the other ones. That encompasses quite a lot, though. Yeah, and and I've I've always been smart. I've always been good at being smart and sounding smart and, uh, and all of these things, but it's... Um, you know, you can imagine what an arrogant little shit I was by the time I was 16 as well. Because, that probably didn't help. 
Yeah, no, right. exactly. That. Yeah. I think that was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I know I'm smart, but then when it's like when it when it's one of the few things you have, you kind of cling to it and you build an identity around it. And yeah. When when I got a bit little bit older, I had to learn to relinquish that identity a little bit because because um, you end up being this like quite two dimensional character. Um, Did it get you into trouble with the teachers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I was a bit older and more confident, like, I'd, I'd yeah. give the teachers shit quite regularly. Did you did you ever get suspended or anything like that? I got an internal suspension yeah. once, but that's because I got found down the pub um, <laughs> when, when I was meant to be in school. Uh, my last year of school, my attendance, was, it, I think it was somewhere between 30 and 40%. Oh, that's worse than mine. Mine was like 65 or something. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I had to move schools because I was bullied and stuff like that. But I don't. I don't really remember it being as bad as it would seem if you just had that as a fact down. It's amazing. I used to work in cams, and it's an amazing common factor. It's, yeah. Um, I used to work with so many bullied kids, and I think it, it's something about you're shaping reality. Um, I think when you're that age, when when you first go into secondary school, you're first. You're at this point where you, you're first learning that the rules of reality aren't as solid as you maybe think they are, and, and we raise our children on these interesting stories that we have, where you know, be kind, be nice, and work hard, and if you do these things, then it's going to pay off. Because you know, the idea of sitting down, you know, you can just imagine yourself kneeling down in front of like some cute little child, looking them dead in the eye, and saying to them, "There's a fair chance that it doesn't matter how nice a person you are or how hard you work. Um, you know, there is a fair chance that this is going to be shit for you because." this is what I do for a living and you might make it but statistically probably not yeah. uh, you're not going to be president you're not going to be prime minister um, you might be happy I hope there's very little I can do about that yeah, it does does feel a little bit like uh, society doesn't actually follow evidence based practice as yeah, much as it claims to that would be strange it would be. that's another strange thing so yeah yeah there was this there was this flight of stairs in this school. You had to go up this flight of stairs uh, to to get to some of your classes at the end of the break. And um, I think I was about thirteen or fourteen years old, and I'm walking up this flight of stairs, and I've got, you know, my mind is just full. It's overwhelmed with with this uh, this self critic that I've developed. And I'm going up the stairs, and all I can think about is, you know, they're hearing you. They're all they're all looking at you. They're all laughing at you. Uh, they're looking at your fat ass. Around this was the thing I used to think quite a lot. And um, and yeah, something just clicked. Um, it's like something just snapped into place and suddenly I knew, without a shadow of a doubt, I understood why this reality that I had, why the, this this stuff that I'd been taught about, you know, niceness and working hard and all these things, all these immutable truths of the universe, that, that as it turned out weren't true, why reality was being valid, kind of violated in this way. And it was because when you um, hit puberty, uh, you developed the ability to read people's minds and communicate telepathically with one another. And there were kind of a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people who don't do this. And what happens with these people is everyone keeps it from them. Nobody tells them. And this was, you know, it, it just made so much sense. It, it explained perfectly what was actually going on. Because I didn't, you know, I can sit here now and I've got these explanations for why I was so isolated. But I didn't know then. And this this just kind of... Like a eureka moment. moment. Sorry? Like a eureka moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it was kind of like, oh, you know, it was almost, it was a relief. It was like, I finally got it. What happened? Did something happen? Because I've got loads of memories from when I was at school of so many dramatic events happening around stairs. I can almost picture something happening. What was it? No, no. Nothing happened? It was just just internal moment? Yeah, it was just like, you know, yeah. 
that's it, I've got it. And it was kind of like, it was a little kernel of an idea and, and it was entirely true. And then over like the following days or weeks or whatever, it just got cemented into, it was already absolute truth, but it, it grew and grew and grew and it became this thing that kind of defined everything that I was doing. So, um, so I'd, you know, at the time it felt like a relief, but then very rapidly it became this absolute horrible, torturous thing because now nobody actually had to be bullying me in order for me to feel bullied because I, I could be sat in a silent classroom doing my work and half of my mind would be on that and the other half would be kind of, you know, thinking everyone everyone's picking on you right now, um, everyone's talking to each other, they're laughing at you. If I heard somebody kind of chuckle to themselves over in the corner or something, it would be like, oh, you know, they've just shared a joke about me. Um, and as well, I think that's a pretty like universal thing though. When I hear someone laughing, I'm thinking, well, yeah, yeah, they exactly. laugh at me. Yeah, I think I think the difference was like I thought there was a uh, there was an active conversation going on. Yeah. But, um, so this moment you spoke of is mm. this was this a was it liberating for you? Was it put you into a new cage? It was both. Ooh. It was definitely both. Um, yeah, because because it was an explanation. I think people are really bad at tolerating uncertainty. Oh yeah. And I was quite anxious as well. And uh, I, th- I think anxiety is all about uncertainty. It's about needing. It's about needing to explain. It's about needing mm. to control. In fact, yeah. I probably argue that um, biggest kind of flaw in everything underlying the way we do mental health at the moment is we're obsessed with explaining and the control that comes with explaining things and I always feel a little bit curious you know what, what's actually the value why do we spend so much money doing research into explaining stuff we, we actually put more money into coming up with explanations than we do into coming up with treatments mm. and that's you know it's a weird set of priorities for me it, it speaks to uh, to this kind of sense of anxiety there's this palpable need to understand everything that's happening to us something about the ego in there i think isn't it yeah when you understand or you have knowledge or something it makes you feel powerful yeah yeah absolutely and and we're terrified of not feeling powerful and and i think yeah that's that's this liberation that you spoke of it's a good word actually um because i understood it was like i could i finally had a tiny bit of power yeah because i knew yeah i, I actually knew what was going on so so yeah yeah so so what? Because I couldn't do anything with it then. And what what actually happened as a consequence was, like I say, uh, bullying stopped being an occasional thing that had to be present, and it became kind of a permanent thing. So and you'd stopped waiting for it to happen in moments, and it was something that was just constantly there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as well, like I was, you know, I was thirteen, so like every fourth or fifth thought that entered my head was like something quite rude, and. Uh, <laughs> But then whenever this happened, like I was I, I was investing all of this kind of uh, mental energy, cognitive resources, I imagine we'd call it, uh, into into kind of self-censorship. Yeah. And like pinning all these thoughts down and holding them down. And, and I was also really, really worried that they'd figure out that I'd figured it out. So I'd start having these thoughts and then I'd, I'd, I'd just kind of clamp down on them immediately and, and just, yeah, just kind of hold them down and pin them down that must be exhausting yeah it's weird it's difficult like people say things to you like that must be exhausting but no it wasn't well no if it's your way of being i'm not sure how to tell yeah you don't know what it feels like to not be yeah because i wasn't monitoring not doing that before i did it and um and i can't i can't tell you much about when i stopped doing it either which is a peculiar thing like it just kind of like it lasted I don't know it lasted like uh, 
something like six or seven years, and then and then it just went away for no reason. Just like the sound of that car. Just like the sound of that car that yeah. went past, yeah. And and like it going away, I didn't. I don't think I even. It became so much of a part of me that I don't think. Yeah, it was so much of a part of me that I didn't even notice it leave because it, it just was a fundamental way of being. It was like gravity. It was. It was just an immutable truth of the universe that I knew was there. We don't think about gravity, we just expect it to work. Yeah, it's a good way yeah. to put it. It was a curious thing. But um, I I tried, I think, when I was a little bit older, I tried to um, I tried to access mental health services twice, I think when this belief was starting to fragment a bit. Yeah, and, uh, is this before or after you'd been evading them? Oh, this this is how I ended up evading them. Um, yeah. So you tried to access them, then you then you started evading them then once I you realised what yeah. what it was all about. Is that what? I don't think I even realised what it was all about. To tell you the truth, um, I did a I did a psychology A level, and it was like to figure out what the hell's going on. And uh, I remember after about a year, I kind of I worked up the courage uh, to go up to the teacher. It was this chap called Dave, and uh, he was a really really lovely guy. I went up to him after a lesson once, and I was like, Dave, um, I've got a question. And he was like, Yeah, what is it? I was like. If somebody, if somebody, you know, just asking for a friend. Yeah, if if, if, if some, I think we just had a lecture on schizophrenia. Oh, and uh, tasty. Yeah, exactly. It was a good one. Um, this is good advice, actually. If there are any any teenagers listening, and you uh, you want to know about your mental health, do not do a psychology A level. <laughs> it will uh. not help you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and yeah, I was like, yeah, Dave, just wondering, you know, what about you know, some if somebody thought that people can maybe read your mind and uh, communicate oh. telepathically with each other and things like this. Would that always be schizophrenia? And uh, Dave, who in hindsight knew very little about mental health, um, he was like, yeah, yeah, that would that would always be that. And he looked very concerned. And yeah, I'm not sure it had alarm bells going off. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay then, uh, off a pop. And, um, and yeah, and that, that delayed me talking to anyone for a good six months. And um, I think that happens quite a lot to a lot of people, doesn't it? There's those moments where um, you think what you're going through is somewhat normal and then you talk to another human being about it and you're quickly told or is put into focus that what, you, what you're thinking or feeling isn't normal and that the face you're met with is abhorrence in a way. Absolutely. And, and you know, if, if, you, if, if you go and dig into the numbers about how many people, you know, experience things like hearing voices mm. or... We say unusual beliefs, and I'm not sure how I feel about unusual beliefs. Yeah, what is a usual belief? Yeah, exactly. Like beliefs, by their nature, are quite weird and woolly. Like they're, they're, you know, the the bloke, the the leader of the free world at the moment has some very interesting beliefs about people's mm. value based on what country they were born in or what country their, you know, their their ancestors were born in and things like this. And it's like, is that a usual belief? I think that belief's a lot more usual than we'd like it to be. I guess it depends what, who you're stood next to or what sort of group you're in or. Yeah, what okay. culture you're in, yeah. what's usual or not, and that's probably going to cause a lot more friction as we go on and as cultures become more intertwined with one another. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to work with uh, this absolutely wonderful girl from Jamaica, and um, did a research interview with her, and she said to me, she said, you know, in my country, I think we've got one mental hospital, and you've got loads in this country. And I was like, oh, okay, so. Um, and she was like, in my country, you can only go to a mental hospital if you're crazy. And I, said, I was like, oh, what, what, um, what do you think we use mental hospitals for in this country then? Yeah. She thought about it for a minute. She was like, I think it's for people who are lonely. It was, 
Yeah. Had a little cry after that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good bad. point, though. Yeah, and and I asked I asked her about this idea. She brought up uh, craziness and, and mental hospitals and things like this, and she was like, "Well, you know, where I'm from, uh, you can you can tell if somebody's crazy because they're not wearing shoes and they're going through bins." I was like, "Okay, that's yeah." But um, I asked her a bit about you know what about people who are talking to people that, that no one else can see. And she was like, yeah, people talk to God. Like people talk to angels. Yeah, that's people. okay. Yeah. According to, yeah, like the Pope, he doesn't get sectioned, does he? No, no. And and it's interesting. I, I think, you know, talking to God and talking to angels is quite interesting as well because you can do it if you go to this particular building or maybe yeah. if you have a quick chat with God before bed, um, that's fine. But if you walk down the street having, like, a full-on natter with God, yeah, people might get... You know, people get a little bit leery. Mm. Um, There's those protective groups, isn't there? Like religion is a great place to be in if you want to think or believe weird things mm. about the universe. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, yeah, are they weird? What's an unusual belief? Yeah, I guess some of them are weird. Some of them are useful, I suppose. Like the stuff about pork. You shouldn't eat pork was useful when they didn't have fridges because mm. it stopped them from getting ill from that certain parasite. But then, yeah certain things in the bible about when it's okay to beat your wife or when it's alright to beat your slave and then the, like the talking snake stuff is a bit weird too it's a bit peculiar but you know I'd probably believe weirder stuff than that like snakes can't talk English at least it's weird when you go up to a parrot and it says hello mm, I, don't th- I don't think that's ever happened to me really? Yeah. you should try it I should. I think it's strange. I think if I was really, really stressed out as well, and I went up to to a bird, and it was like, "Hi," I'd uh, I'd probably have like a little mini crisis right there, just yeah. wondering whether it happened. I'd like I'd need the parrot to to repeat itself immediately. That's normally as far as the conversation goes. But you yeah. hang around long enough, where you keep if you say hello over and over to them again, they just say hello back after a while. Keep saying hello. Yeah. I'm just picturing myself, you know, stood in front of this parrot seeking some kind of emotional reassurance from it. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Hello? <laughs> yeah, it'd be good if you could get, like, therapy from animals, like the actual talking type. Yeah. That would be good. Therapy dogs are pretty cool. They should have... I always think they should have just animals in, like, mental hospitals yeah. or just around mental health buildings. Yeah. Just running loose. I used to work with a art psychotherapist who... She had a pet dog. Yeah, um, and she she'd bring him in very very occasionally, but yeah, great, absolute great idea. Stick a dog in a room, come talk about something difficult with some somebody. Give them a dog to cuddle. Yeah, while you do it, no dogs are better than us. They definitely are better than us. They don't judge people, do they? No, no, absolutely. No, no. no, apparently foxes are better than dogs at that because dogs they 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 show uh, you know the sort of love a dog gets or gives to its owner. Yeah, foxes give that to everyone. Amazing. I need to get fox. My cat would never forgive me. They, you know that uh, they did a thing where they bred a fox to be a pet. Right. I think it was some Russian experiment. And after seven generations, they became like better pets than dogs. I remember reading about this, yeah. Mm. They just killed yeah. the ones that showed signs of not liking humans or would bite or bark or anything like that. Yeah. They just kept the ones that didn't. Yeah, it was a really... Like, I remember reading that and being like, domesticate fox is great. And then it was like... Fox genocide. Yeah, think of the think of the blood that yeah. spilled to get that far. Yeah, that's um, playing God, isn't it? Yeah, we like that. Yeah, I think the whole playing God thing is silly, anyway, isn't it? Mm. Just by wearing clothes, we're playing God. Yeah, 
yeah, it's difficult to think on that too hard. I think, uh, yeah, go a bit mad. Everything we do that's not animalistic is sort of playing God, I think, isn't it? Mm. In certain terms. Yeah. Where, where were we? Oh, you want okay. to say something? God. I was going to say, I, I think we're uh, we're we're not very good at noticing when animals do things that aren't very animalistic. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's like um, I was reading recently that, that dolphins all have names for each other. So a, a pod of dolphins will all address one particular dolphin in their pod by a distinct click or, or, or shriek or whistle or whatever it is they do. And, um, and and that's that dolphin's name. I've been watching uh, the new series of Blue Planet, and there's this yeah. lovely bit where a group of bottlenose dolphins meet a bunch of, uh, they're called like pseudo-killer whales or something like this. Mm. Um, and they start like trying to talk to each other. And it's interesting, it's like they're, they're trying, they're speaking to each other in different languages and just, you know, making sense of each other. And then, what happens? Oh, they end up hanging out. And, really? Um, yeah, they, they form like a big hunting party and go looking for fish. Nice. Yeah. I do think dolphins are probably smarter than us in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tell because they're underwater and we're not, but yeah, they I, seem to be doing all right. I always think like you, you can broadly fit everything on Earth into two categories. Like, um, it's not a good thing for me to say. Uh, bear with me. <laughs> I, I think I think there are things that adapt to their environments, and there are things that adapt their environments to them. Yeah. And I think a lot of what we think of as being human. And, and a lot of this stuff that we think of as not animalistic is adapting your environment to suit you. And uh, it's not going great, no. um, us doing that. But when we look for intelligence in other animals, what we're actually looking for is how much are they changing their environment to suit them. So it's like, oh, you know, this, this orangutan's learned how to fish yeah. using a spear. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. Stuff like that. And, and we, we love crafting tools and using tools and things like that, and we love seeing animals do that. But I do wonder... You know, we know that we know that dolphins are super smart. Mm. Um, they use water as a tool, don't they? That's the thing that they use for a tool. Yeah, but absolutely. yeah, they can't build stuff underwater. That's the problem. Yeah, and and they don't. And you know, if they could, would they? Yeah. And how can we grade intelligence when we're only interested in what we think is intelligent? Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. And if they could, because we're just basically destroying the planet and saying we're smart. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas exactly. if, if they had like the thumbs or if they had the, the power to actually build stuff and they knew it would cause damage because mm. they could see what we're doing, would they? Yeah. Same with octopuses and stuff. Or octopi, rather. Sorry about that. I think octopuses is actually correct. Is it? It's octopuses, octopi and octopodes. All three are correct. Really? Yeah, really. Oh, octopi sounds better, doesn't it? But this language of ours doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Um, so where are we in your story? Oh yeah, yeah. Under so, underwater. Yeah, in the, under the sea. Um, so yeah, six months. Six months after my conversation with Dave. Um, good old I, Dave. Good old Dave. He was he was a lovely, lovely geezer. Like he was doing his best. Yeah. Um, I, I have no ill will towards Dave for scaring the shit out of me. And yeah, about six months of this, I'm still kind of, you know, having all this quite distressing experience. So um, I thought. I'm gonna to go to my GP, see my see my GP and talk about this. I make an appointment and I go and sit down. And you know, I was I was like 15, 16. I didn't really go to my GP. I didn't know the guy. I didn't have a relationship with him like some people do. And um, I think it might have been the first time I ever met him actually. And he was he was great. He was this t- absolutely tiny, like really really old Korean guy. 
and he looked like a raisin. Like, he was just this tiny, very round, very, very wrinkly person. And, um, and, and he'd speak in, like, the most curt sentences. And, um, and in, he tried to be very reassuring, but his way of doing this was just repeating, well, that's not very good, is it? No, that doesn't over. sound reassuring at all. Yeah, like, I, I could feel his intent, but, um, but yeah, I sat, I sat down with this guy and I was like, uh, I think and I had real difficulty getting these words out because I knew how weird it was. I was like, you know, something very unusual has been happening to me. You didn't, you probably didn't have the language for it as well, right? No, no, um, no, definitely not. And, uh, and the language that you were supposed to use is not a very nice language either. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, certainly not one that I wanted to use. And, and this guy was like, you know, I sat there for half an hour kind of trying trying to work up the courage to say what was going not half an hour, it was like five minutes. Um, <laughs> it was a GP appointment. Yeah. Um, like five minutes trying to get these words out and eventually this chap kind of turns around to me and was like, come on then. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I was like, okay, some, sometimes I think people can read my mind. And... Um, Bang! Now he hits the alarm button. Yeah, exactly. Like guy, yeah. The, the, the like big men in the white coats come in and drag me off. And uh, no, no, he he pondered that for about three seconds, and then he looked at me and he went, "That's not very good, is it?" <laughs> I was like, "No, <laughs> no, that's not very good, doctor." And um, he thought again, and then he looked and he said, "Sounds to me like you're quite paranoid." Yeah. I was, Cheers, Mister Raisin Man. I was like, oh. yeah, on 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 reflection. And again, I don't hold this guy any ill will because, you know, he just didn't... It's not like we talk about this stuff, is it? It's not no. like we... Yeah, they don't get the training. Yeah, and, and the training they do get, like, the way medicine talks about this stuff is seriously unhelpful a lot of the time. So so for him, like, his job is to have answers. And, and that's what he'd done. He'd given me an answer. You're paranoid. Mm. You're this thing. And, and on reflection, saying it sounds like you're quite paranoid is such a stupid thing to say to a person who you suspect is quite paranoid. Yeah. Um, and he was right. <laughs> I was quite paranoid. I was just kind of oh, okay. And he was, he was like, you know, we can refer you uh, to to people who can help you with this. And I was like, you know, great. Thank you very much. Go away. Wait for my referral letter. And um, and yeah, my understanding of what mental health services looked like came from. Um, I suppose where everyone does. If you've not got like a friend or a family member going through it, it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, and like yeah. girl interrupted, yeah. and uh, then you know, of course, you got horror movies yeah. and stuff like this. So had all these lovely visions of uh, being being locked up somewhere, like in a straitjacket in a padded room and stuff like this. So eventually, this like this very politely worded referral letter comes through the door, and uh, and I read it, and I, I think I kind of thought about it for all the five minutes. And then chucked it in the bin and went on with my life, and uh, and lived in fear for a while actually that you know I was going to start getting letters through and maybe they'd start phoning me and stuff like this because I was thinking, you know, and at the time my entire idea of what mental health looks like, somebody shows up to you and is like, oh, I think people can read my mind. That person needs to be locked up, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's not that far from the truth. Yeah, it's what it's what a lot of people still think, and uh, so I, I was I was totally expecting you know some kind of robust intervention to uh to to come in and make sure i didn't slip through the cracks but um or put, I, push you into some yeah yeah yeah, yeah i don't think um i was conceptualizing it like that at the time but yeah hindsight's a great thing yeah absolutely 2020 um but yeah nothing nothing ever came no more letters no phone calls no nothing yeah just kind of carried on 
Okay, so we're back in. We just had a little comfort break. Yeah. Where were we? Where were we? Yeah, there's there's kind of another side to this, and and it's interesting that you know you talk about the unusual beliefs side of things, and then you have to talk about the other side of things separately. And I wonder if I talk about it that way because that's kind of the labels we've been fed because mm. it's all the same thing. Um, Compartmentalizing. Yeah. Or fragmenting. Yeah, and kind of whose compartments are they? Whose fragments are they? Because it doesn't feel like they're mine. So yeah, uh, from, I think, from about 14, I started hanging out with uh, a group of people who you could fairly say were the wrong crowd. Undesirables, is that yeah, a word? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, we were, yeah, we were the kids who were, like, hanging out uh, in the town centre smoking weed um, and all this stuff. But, you know, I had mates, which was... Yeah, that was the first. Uh, hey, you, it's the government's fault, really, because if they didn't want you on the streets doing drugs, they could have just legalised all the drugs and given you a place to do it safely. Yeah, you know, and in, in Amsterdam, they have this great park, and uh, you, you walk in, there's this big sign-up that's like, yeah, do all your drugs, but don't like don't bother families, like people bring their kids here. So by all means, come into this park and shoot heroin if you want, but could you... Yeah, you know, take bit, your needles with you. Yeah, be a bit chill <laughs> about it. Like, behave yourselves. Um, so yeah, yeah. This uh, this group of people I was hanging out with, there was, um, you know, we were like these these really dramatic kind of teenagers, and everything was always the end of the world. A lot of what I suppose you'd call mental illness uh, <laughs> going on with with us, and a lot of us were, you know, really depressed and um, having a really hard time about things, and there, there was. Did you talk about it amongst yourselves, though? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much all we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, at least. Yeah, we were, you know, yeah, smoking lots of weed, getting drunk a lot, pissing about, um, having a good time. There was, there were a few guys in this group who were, like, in their early 20s. A couple of guys who'd hang out with us who were in their early 20s, and uh, they were kind of our gateway into, like, meeting dealers and stuff like this, and... And I remember at the time being like, oh, we must be really cool. Like, we must be so cool because these guys are hanging out with us. I'm yeah. sure you were. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I think it was more that these guys didn't have anyone their own age who wanted to hang out with them. Oh. Um, and yeah, there, there was this point where like I'd gone to I'd gone to sleep as you do, and like my mum walked in and she saw that that I'd hurt myself quite badly, and um, and she kind of insisted that. I, I go and speak to someone about this, and I've got no idea how I did it, but I convinced her uh, to not, and, and that, it, you know, that it would be okay. And I remember like begging her, like, "Don't, don't tell dad, please, don't tell dad." And yeah, didn't, didn't go to services then. I'm curious about this as well. I've, I've said to you, I'm, I'm curious about what would have happened if I'd actually stuck with this stuff and had some kind of mental health intervention at any point during my teenage years. Would where would I be? Would I be better off or worse? I don't know. Did they never make you see like a school counselor or anything? No. That's what I got. No. They said like because uh, I was when I was at college. That was my first run in with any formal mental health stuff. Was I wasn't going to the classes, and then they ended up like, oh, John, you've got to go and see this college counselor person. Hmm. And they talked to me for about five minutes, and they were like, oh, you're depressed, John. And then that was that. Great, that sounds really helpful. That was it, yeah. yeah. I was like, cheers, and then just carried on. How did you find that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really want anything to do with it mm. to begin with, to be honest. I think um, 
even at that point, I did have this idea about the way we think of madness being completely wrong. Yeah, I'm, I don't think I ever thought of myself as mad. It's an interesting thing, because I think of myself as mad now. Yeah. I, I take great pride in it, actually. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm well into survivor movements, and, and I, I think madness is a political thing that we can use, and should. Well, no, should. <laughs> Nobody should do anything, shouldn't they? It's such a dangerous thing to do. But no, back then, I, you know, I just was. I didn't have anything to compare it to. When I worked in camps, like, you'd, you'd get these kids. I, I think people often don't think of camps for what it is, which is pretty much all camps treatment is coercive treatment. You know, teenagers rarely access camp services because they want to. Mm. They, they access camp services because their parents or their school are making them. And they don't necessarily... Like, it can be so easy to stand there and look at someone and be like, well, something's clearly wrong here. Like, why are they spending all their spare time smoking weed? Why are they hurting themselves? What kind of things are they believing? But it just, you know, for me it just was. It was just reality. And also, like, I had a group of mates who were all doing the same stuff. So, um... It's just normalised. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I'd not really had a group of mates before then, so, yeah, I didn't, didn't have anything at all to compare it to. Yeah, it's weird. it's weird how you can do all that stuff as well and not, not kind of clock, like... Not even think about it. Yeah, yeah. Not, not think, oh, actually, I'm pretty sure this isn't how people are meant to be living. But, um... It was a cool thing because all these all these kids in school who like used to used to give me a really hard time and had done for the last three years, when when I became this kind of character who was hanging out with people who were a lot older and you know smoking a bit of weed and doing all this stuff, um, or even even just smoking cigarettes and stuff. I remember over lunch breaks people see me and I'd be there like smoking a roll up and people would come up to me and be like, "Oh, is that weed?" I'd be like. Hey mate, <laughs> it's, it's crack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's chronic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was this, uh, an interesting kind of power in it. It was, you know, this this identity that I had. It was mm. the first time I'd ever felt powerful. Um, and yeah, yeah. By the time, by the like, my last two years of school were great. I um, we didn't have a school counselor. And I had this form tutor, and she was brilliant. She's a poet, actually. And she's a really, really good poet. Um, if uh, yeah, if you're into your poetry, her name's Catherine Daskovich. She's very, very cool. Um, and and she was she was really caring, and wonderful, and supportive. And I lied through my teeth to her and told her that I was receiving um, some kind of support when I actually wasn't. And um, and yeah, but I, I remember the other teachers like they they regarded the fact that like. I'd leave at lunchtime and then not come back and they thought the best answer for this was like to give me detentions and shout at me and stuff um, and I think my last year of school I had an attendance rate of uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent <laughs> and um, I've had this great kind of you know you get your like yearly school reports where all your teachers mm. write home about you yeah. I remember like I had this history teacher who was one of my favorite teachers and you wrote this great school report where it's like, on the surface, Jason appears to be quite a nice, polite, and pleasant young man. But um, he's like, he called me like a duplicitous master of lies. Because <laughs> yeah. I wasn't turning in my work and I wasn't showing up. And uh, so he, yeah, he really needed to tell my parents what a lying little shitbag I was. Yeah, that's, that's quite vicious. Yeah, I know. It was, yeah, man, it was kind of last straw. <laughs> Did you do good in the exams though, or what? Yeah, no, I did really well. Um, so who needs school, right? Yeah, I, I used to have these, like, screaming matches um, 
with with my mum over not showing up, and she'd be like, "Do you want to ruin your whole life?" I'd be like, "That's nah, gonna be fun. Don't worry about it." Yeah. And uh, yeah, it really worked out. Um, <laughs> worked out pretty well. And yeah, so so yeah, there's this this whole other side of it where, you know, I think I think people are a lot more interested in talking about these uh, these things like you know, do people hear voices? Do they see things that only they can see? Do they believe things that people that society tells us we're not meant to believe? Um, and that all sounds fascinating. And I think we've got this yeah. very kind of medical script that goes with it as well. Like these things just kind of emerge out of the ether and they yeah. just you know that guy's brain's wrong and this is happening and isn't that fascinating it's just a genetic time bomb yeah exactly oh who was it who said that uh, I'm, I'm sure somebody somebody who should have known a lot better said something about a genetic time bomb when it came to psychosis lots of people were very upset um but yeah yeah there was the dark side yeah we're walking into the dark side now yeah I don't I don't have an awful lot to say about it, yeah. to be honest, because I spent most of my time like just like it, my entire motivation was not doing that, like not feeling like that. And luckily, like the town I grew up in, it was the uh, the drugs capital of the East Midlands is one of its claims to fame. The other one is Margaret Thatcher was born there. Um, Ooh. Yeah. 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 Is there any like stuff going on around the town about that? Like. Weirdly enough, she's Graffiti like. Or anything? No, she's pretty much been erased. Um, which yeah. I, I think her absence is quite an interesting thing, especially like the the place, the, the yeah, the it's a Tory stronghold, um, but nobody talks about Thatcher. And there's like a local museum, um, and there's nothing about Thatcher in there. Uh, oh, that's weird. Yeah, the, before they'd be proud of that. Yeah, no, it's I don't know, I don't know what it is, but we've got like a big statue of Isaac Newton. Uh, he went to the school I went to. And, That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, um, he's not actually from the town either. Like he's from somewhere nearby, but we got a big statue of him because he happened to go to school there. But nothing about Thatcher. George um, Orwell used to go to school here. Oh yeah. Yeah, like down the road. Nice. Well, like twenty miles away, but yeah. You know the Red Lion in is it Animal Farm? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the Red Lion pub is like about two miles away from where I live. That's what. That's the pub that's in that book. Cool. Nice. I think that I think Orwell might have said something about a pub that used to be my local. I think yeah, I had a quote up yeah. from, by him where like he'd written into a newspaper just extolling the virtues of this like London pub. It's called the uh, the Telegraph at the Earl of Dysart, and they used to have this thing by Orwell written on the wall, and it was something they'd said about him. Uh, he'd said about the place. Oh, that's pretty is, cool. Yeah, he's a good chap. Yeah, liked a pub. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, <laughs> where, what's next in this play? Yeah, I don't know. It's probably drugs. Yeah. It's probably drugs. Let's get into the drugs um, then. You told me earlier you had a really organised way of doing drugs. I did, yeah. Which I, is I, impressive. I, so I think it breaks some of the uh, stereotypes around drug users. Really like to think about how, um, like being 14, 15 years old and having weed and wanting to smoke it but not having any Rizzlers can transform like a team of 14 year olds yeah. into like advanced engineers that yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one has more ingenuity than uh, you know like a 14 year old girl with a capella, capella bottle and a biro wanting to get high then then you know these guys should be getting jobs at nasa but, um, and yeah that, that's that's basically all i spent my time doing was like hanging out in parks getting drunk um and yeah for, for many years smoking lots of weed and it's cool that you mentioned uh, this this kind of idea 
about, you know, weed and psychosis, or weed and whatever you want to call it. Because um, for me, I smoked a whole mess of weed, and it made me feel okay. Mm. Um, it made me feel more paranoid. I definitely did that. I think if I'd ended up in a mental health service, mm-hmm. somebody two, 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 two and two together, and been like, you need to stop. You need to stop smoking this weed because we've got drugs. Try these instead. Yeah, exactly. These, take these drugs. They're not fun. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, uh, they'll, in fact, they're going to be fairly disastrous. The only <laughs> but... fun ones they've got, they don't. They don't want to give you most of the time anyway, right? Ooh. Like Valium. Yeah, that's pretty good. But when you want it, they don't, don't want to give it to you. Yeah, and you've got to wait until you're in like palliative care before they whack out the heroin. Yeah. Um, something to look forward to at least. Mm. But and you know, uh, if you heard of the Cochrane, is that? A research place. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's an independent uh, research thing. They what they spend their, all of their time doing is grabbing all of the research on a particular subject. I think it's everything within like health, but they might do other stuff. I'm not sure. And um, they they check all the research out. They kick out the bits where the methodology wasn't good enough to say they actually found anything, and then they do an analysis on everything that was left. And what they come out with is according to kind of the entire mass of empirical human knowledge up until this point, because I think there's lots of non-empirical human knowledge that's incredibly valuable that we don't use, but according to everything we know in this domain, this is the truth. And the last time I checked, they, they'd had a look at, um, at weed and psychosis and adolescence and uh, found insufficient evidence to say that there's a relationship between them. Um, yeah. But, you know, going to services and everyone assumes you smoke weed, it makes you makes you go mad. It's always more complicated than that, really. I'm yeah. sure there, there's got to be some relationship, but it's not one in complete isolation, is there? So yeah. it's, it's, maybe it's a better question asking, like, what came first, the weed or the yeah. psychosis? Exactly, because, yeah, I, I, was, I was self-medicating. Yeah, that's a lot of what it is as well, isn't it? And then that just becomes like a protective factor. It's another thing I think we need to think about more is when when you take away these things that we think of as like maladaptive coping strategies, mm. um, what are you replacing them with? What are you leaving someone with when you take that away? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Vulnerability to start with, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's why therapy is hard. And, you know, I think people come to therapy because the strategies that they've been using to survive aren't working for them anymore. And, and fair enough, you know, you do have you do have to replace these things. You do, but I think we could think a little bit harder about some of them rather than just being like smoking. You know, smoking cannabis is automatically bad. Like if if we meet somebody who drinks three or four pints every every evening when they get in from work and they're still they're still functioning in their life, but they're doing this, you'd probably think that guy's got a problem. Um, and and a you know a problem with alcohol but for some reason with weed if you've got somebody who smokes like one or two joints every single day especially if they're a teenager then they start to have weird experiences and things like this it's always like oh this has caused this mm. and it's not like well why are they smoking yeah what happened before yeah why, why, why are they getting stoned every single day like what what they're keeping a lid on what's happening um but i think with the with the person who drinks there's there's usually a bit of an assumption that, like, oh, they're probably probably hasn't come out of nowhere. They're, they're probably doing that for something. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, I would uh, smoke <laughs> smoke an awful lot of weed, too much weed. Um, then when I got a little bit older, I got I stopped having fun 
That's basically why 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 I stopped smoking weed. It stopped being fun. Yeah. Um, it just started make, making me feel like tired and stupid and quite paranoid, and so I just kind of stopped smoking it. But when I got into college, I made friends with this guy, and uh, and yeah, this this organised way I had of taking drugs, where yeah, I'd, I'd I was I had a weekend job at a little like Tesco Express, and uh, when when I did the evening shift. Um, would close up and then my dealer would pull into the car park and meet me. <laughs> he was this um, he was this really scary guy actually. Like he he was permanently coked up. He drove this uh, this bright orange sports car with like blacked out windows. I'd buy some uh, some pills and some coke and some speed and like I'd go meet my mate and we'd take our coke and we'd go out on the town and you'd take your coke until it was done. Like, this sounds a lot more clever than... Or it sounds like I put more thought into it than I actually did because, you know, I was high. I wasn't making... Uh, I wasn't actually making decisions that sound as reasoned as um, as I'm describing. But then you take you take your pills and you try to time it so when the coke wore off, the pills would kick in. And, and you know, you come down off of one and come straight up into another. And then you do that with the pills and then you... you start on the uh, the speed and you'd basically stay high for a weekend and like, you'd wake up on, well you wouldn't wake up you wouldn't have gone to sleep, but on Monday morning you'd pretty much still be high and then you'd kind of go and do your day and, and then you'd just have like an absolutely vicious come down for two or three days and after all this and um, and then it would be like Friday again and, and you'd just do it again and I, I did that as much as I had money to do it How long? How long did that period go for? I can't even tell you. Um, but it lasted. It lasted until I stopped college, and then I got like my f- first full-time job. I used to work for this really horrible company. I was like an accounts assistant. Oh no! And uh, I remember this really interesting time. Like my best mate had gone up to Manchester to go to uni, and I remember planning to go up to visit him. And I had more money than I knew what to do with because I was like still living at home. I just bought like three grams of coke. And I'm probably incriminating myself by saying this, aren't I? Um, no, it's, no, you can, it's not illegal, is it? <laughs> to talk about. So, like, I went up to I went up to Manchester to see him, and I got off at the train station, and I messaged him, and I was like, "Where are you?" And he was like, oh, "I'm at the other train station. And they've got like is it Victoria and Piccadilly, I think." So I made my way there, um, and and I, I was pretty high. And when I got to the train station, there were like police there. Mm. And um, I messaged him. I was like, "Where were you? Uh, where are you?" And he, I don't know. The police text back. <laughs> yeah, we've got your friend. I don't know what it is he said to me, but I thought, "Oh, he's on the platform." So, like, I went into the train station and I wandered onto the platform to look for him. And I came back out. And what these police were doing was they were testing everyone. Uh, they were putting everyone who came th- came out onto a metal detect through a metal detector. I came back out and they're like, oh, you have to go through here. And I, I said to them, like, oh, I've just, I've literally just gone onto the platform and come back out again. I'm just looking for my mate. And they're like, oh, you still have to go through here. I was like, but guys, like, if I had a bomb, it would be on the platform. <laughs> like, mm. Oh, you said bomb. Yeah, it was like mission accomplished. Well, this was, I think everyone was a lot less scared of this stuff. Um, and and they made me go through. But when I was watching people go through, I um, they were like, people were putting their wallets and things in one of the little trays. In yeah, one of the trays, and they were. It was like a portable metal detector that they'd like set up, and you had to walk through. And and they were like opening things up and looking at them. And like what I had was in my wallet, 
and I was like, you know, I'm going to prison. <laughs> That's mm. basically what's happening here. This is a really bad scene. And uh, I got my wallet out and I kind of felt the sides to see if I had any coins in it. And, you know, since then, I've never carried coins in my wallet since this moment, even though I don't, I haven't, I haven't taken drugs for years. But yeah, the, like this moment was so terrifying, so traumatic. Like I still, I still don't carry coins in my wallet, but I picked up and felt and there was no coins. And I just said, I've not actually got anything metal in here. I think I'll keep it on me. This this person who was quite frustrated with me by this point was just kind of like, yeah, go on then, that's fine. And I put it back in and got through, survived. Um, yeah, it was, I'm good at dodging stuff. Yeah. Um, so um, I think I carried on doing that until I was, I don't know, I don't know when I stopped. Eventually this, this company I was working for, like the recession hit. And this company I worked for went under and I needed to find a new job and I saw like jobs for charity fundraisers advertised. And I think the thing with all this like all this drug stuff and all this drinking stuff and all this making weed stuff and as as well as I, I was having like a lot of risky, quite casual relationships with all of uh with with people in my friendship group and we all were and it was at the time it was like, Yeah, great, like look at all this value I have um, <laughs> because because you know people find me attractive and that's that's an unbelievable thing um but looking back on it I was like Jesus Christ like that wasn't that wasn't how this stuff's meant to work and yeah yeah I saw this uh, but but all of this was um it was just running away like it was just running away from what was actually going on and how I was feeling and what was causing those those feelings um I was just you know whether it was finding an altered state or finding somebody to like spend a night with or sp- 24 hours with it was just constant distraction and avoidance and fleeing and getting myself as far away from all this stuff as I possibly could and I used to think about it as like being bored and and I still do to some extent like sometimes I'll be out for a drink with people or something I'll be like I just feel a bit bored but it's not it's not boredom it's kind of unsatisfaction it's yeah it's but deeper yeah it's like a profound sense of dissatisfaction with everything yeah like you know i'm it's, it's just been there and it's like i don't it's got to be more than this yeah yeah and it, or it's it's like feeling like you just you you can't find joy in what it is you're doing um there's a word for that isn't there anhedonia yeah yeah so yeah yeah i so this this place went under and i needed a job and there were jobs going as charity fundraisers in stoke mm, and being the charitable person you are absolutely um it's worth worth noting at this point that like my I, my social skills still weren't great because um, you know most of the time i was interacting with people i'd normally you know i'd done something to take the edge off uh and and this job involved going around like knocking on people's doors uh. and asking asking them for money which was a little bit outside of my comfort zone at yeah, the time. It should be to anyone, I think, like, yeah, to be honest. I'd hope so. Especially because uh, they only ever pick the poor neighbourhoods to go and knock on the doors of, well, don't they? That's because rich people, like, I can tell you confidently from doing this job, rich yeah. people don't give you anything. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I signed up and I went to a couple of interviews and they liked me and I went and they, they provided a house. And uh, and in hindsight, this this was like, this was more drugs. It was um, It was... You know, it was more skiving off school. It was more of all this stuff. It was just running away, but finding like a more permanent kind of solution. Yeah, and I lived in this house in Stoke for a couple of months, and I was really shit at this job. Um, I was really, really, I was so bad at it actually that sometimes like we get dropped off in an area in the morning, and this is uh, 
people should know about this actually these these charity fundraising agencies you're self-employed and you you live completely off commission that you make uh, based on your figures so you can end up earning below minimum wage um, and also if you didn't earn enough money you'd owe them rent for the house everyone else in this house was a student like on their summer holidays except for me um, and and we had this weird boss he was like this little Australian guy never wore shoes and uh and one one of our guys, he'd like worked with him before in a different house in a different city, and he was like, yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't live anywhere. He just kind of whichever house has a spare room, he stays in. And um, and once he stayed in our house, and there was like a needle under the bed after he was done, and it was kind of like it was like no judgment, but this guy's my boss. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's just this kind of at, at the time, I, th- I think I'd have a lot much more open minded view of him, but he he was just this really weird character. Um, nomad. So he's a nomad. Yeah, and he was so good at getting people to give him money. It yeah. was like I remember going out on like they called it training, and it wasn't at all. He, he just stood there next to him while he knocked on a few doors. And it was weird. He'd just kind of look at his feet and shuffle around a bit and be like, you know, ah, oh, hey, I'm here. I'm collecting money. And what do you think about me? And then people would be like, yeah, man, how much? Huh. And I've got, that sounds like not a very good strategy, though. No, I've got no idea how it worked or how we did it. Like, though, at one point, when I got bored with this job, I um, I did try going around and speaking to people in an Australian accent, and people were a lot more receptive. So maybe there was something about that. It is a friendly accent. It is. Like towards the end, I just used to like find a nice park or a bit of grass or something, and just kind of cotch up there for a bit and wait for the day to go by. And yeah, but I was really bad at this job. Ended up getting fired and uh, ended up leaving from there. Yeah, I had an interesting year after that, which I'm not going to talk about. Um, but then after that was over, after that year was over, and and I, I got clean as well. Like, I, I said, got clean. Yeah. Like, stopped taking drugs. I think I was better with myself. I, I was living with these people, and they were like, you know, when I was in Stoke, I was living with these people, and they were they were people. They they didn't they didn't live like I'd been living, and I think that really really helped a lot. Being around people where the the topic wasn't always kind of what's wrong or how are we going to get high next or how are we going to get drunk next or all this stuff. And um, that's a shocking thing. Yeah, I know, right? Humanity. Yeah. <laughs> um, after that was over, I went and uh, I was I was living with my parents again, and this was kind of a big part of the problem. Was, was living with my parents, and a lot of that was what I'd been trying to run away from. So I applied to uni, so I could do it again. And um, my my last year of college, unsurprisingly, didn't go well. Uh, it's when when my, my ability to do no work and get really good grades ran out. So I left college with a C, a D, and an E. And um, I applied to the two unis that would take me <laughs> on the psychology course. Uh, Over that point, why did you want to do psychology? I still kind of I wanted to know what was going on but also I wanted like I wanted neat and easy answers like you meet people a lot both working professionally or people who are accessing services and they want they want you to just explain to them very neatly what mm. this illness is and and how to fix it mm. and that's what I wanted I wanted that knowledge to uh I wanted to understand, and I wanted to be able to fix myself, and I wanted to be able to fix other people as well. I'd hated, like, 19, 20-year-old me. Well, I'd hate 19, 20-year-old me. Um, but 
but yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely what I wanted. And it's good that you you sort of own that though, because I feel like there are a lot of um, professionals who would would never say that, but that is the truth as to what got them into it in the first place is that they want to have that. Um, like, why did they why did they go into like a, a help helping profession? Is it because they wanted to help people, or is it because they wanted the power to yeah. help people? Yeah, and. I, I don't know the answer to that question for me. I definitely wasn't thinking about it in terms of power, but if I look back on it, then that's what I was after. I was after, yeah, I was after feeling powerful. And it's because I felt so powerless. And, and, and I, you know, I'd been around all of these people with mental health problems, but none of us ever talked about them using that language in that kind of way. So it was almost like I thought this psychology thing was something else. Um... So yeah, I was going to go do that, and I was going to get that knowledge, and I'd you know change the world, do do things like this, and uh, and yeah, I went and I I went to Southbank University, which is probably the best decision. I think the probably the two best decisions I've ever made in my life actually were chucking away that referral letter and going to Southbank University, um, who were quite famously in the bottom of the league tables a few years ago when they yanked the university funding. I think it was like the Daily Mail was like, Britain's worst university goes to maximum fees. Um, sure it wasn't because of you though, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Um, but yeah, no, they, they they were great. Their, their psychology department is, is something else. They're doing absolutely excellent work over there. They, um, I think... Most psychology undergrad programs, they've, they've got this module that they call like abnormal psychology. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, and uh, at Southbank, they've got mental health and distress, and it's like, you know... Oh, they, they don't have abnormal. No, they don't, they don't use that language. That's good. Um, they've, she ended up becoming my boss. Um, we had some, before I started this course, we had some really lovely kind of teary leaving drinks, and uh, I was kind of stood there, you know, saying to her, like, basically, you saved my life. Um... I know that's a lot of responsibility, and I'm very sorry, but you know that's that's what happened here. Deal with it. Yeah. It's not the worst thing. <laughs> like I'm drunk right now. Like, yeah. I'm I'm gonna give you all these feelings to hold. Do what you want with them. But yeah. No. She's uh, called Paula Reevy, and she's she's great. She's she very recently set up a master's program there, and it has, it's the first uh, it's the first kind of psychology master's program in the world that has a module that's entirely taught by experts by experience. And unlike a lot of universities who do, you know, experts by experience stuff, they get paid just as much as, if Whoa. not more, Whoa. than me. Well, I haven't, but, why haven't I heard of that? Yeah, hey, that's, you should. That's pretty good. Send her an email, man. That's uh, one, of the, one of the things I'm always <laughs> complaining about, about, like, the whole co-production yeah. thing. Is that, you know, just that term, co, seems like it's 50-50. Yeah. And in that way, they should be getting paid the same Absolutely, people with the initials after their name. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the way I think about it is every time because I, I ended up, I still do. I do a bit of teaching on this module, kind of telling this story. And um, yeah, even even when you are getting paid well, it's like nobody's reimbursing me for the fifteen years. Yeah. That that kind of led up to this moment, are they? So if you you know if you could pay me something now, <laughs> that would that would help because this is this is emotional yeah. labor this is a easy. lot of money on drugs yeah <laughs> exactly like yeah. there's a lot of investment yeah. in this i'd like to see some kind of uh some something back just they don't know how back. expensive drugs are though these institutions really do they no. that's the problem well i don't know different paths into into academia my one was interesting uh 
yeah, no, I went and studied there. Um, probably note that by this point, I'd done absolutely nothing to actually work on any of these problems that I had, and the stress of university didn't go fantastically well. Um, you made it through, though. Yeah, I did. I did have a, a couple of little blips. One of them was in my first year when a guy I lived with decided he was going to set himself up as a methadrone dealer, and what that looked like in practice was a guy who wasn't okay at all. Like He, he was not doing well at all. Um, and he, he bought himself a kilo of methadrone, which was legal at the time. Uh, they used to, they called it like plant fertilizer or something, yeah. but it wasn't. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I got into that in a big way. And, and in fact, and, and he just used to give it out as well for free to his mates. And uh, he ended up, his, his parents ended up coming over uh, from, from Paris because he, he had a really bad time and they had to come and take him over. So I think he was sectioned. And, and thanks thanks to the joys of methadrone, I had my one and only, what I suppose you could call a psychotic episode, sat around the table. And I remember I was, I was really worried about this mate of mine, the guy with all the drugs. I've been really worried about him for a while. Again, it's like it's about powerlessness. That, that's what was happening to me. It was kind of ontological powerlessness, the, the, the weight of being, and I just couldn't cope with it. And, and because of what I'd come to uni to do, and because, because my mind was still set up in a way that wasn't helpful for me. So, like, I had ideas that could get quite grandiose. Um, <laughs> just chuck a little bit of psychological yeah, language in yeah. there somewhere. Um, I feel like I need a bell. Yeah, exactly. So I can just, like, ding, ding every time one of those things comes up. So, like, we, we, don't, we don't have better words for it sometimes. I think I'm going to get a bell. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. That could work. It's a nice sound as well. Yeah, it's nice. It might be a bit jarring for people who are listening. Or a gong, then. That could work. Yeah, look, just a little one. Like a singing bowl, you can just like oh, yeah. gently do it through and then get to a higher pitch when when things are getting getting a yeah, bit psychology. I don't know, I think it's too long, too long a sound. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, I remember being sat around this table and being really, really worried about him, and then like a solution presented itself. And it's worth noting that at this point, all this kind of telepathy stuff and all that that was gone. That was old news. Don't know where or how or when, but it had it had gone away. And suddenly, you ever, did you ever watch that TV show, House, with Hugh Laurie? No, I didn't. I don't really like Hugh Laurie. Hmm. Sorry, Hugh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure yeah, all the celebrities listening right now, we're very yeah. sorry. Please don't yeah. tell Hugh. Yeah, yeah like the, the premise of this is that he's this, you know, this, this wounded healer, and he's, uh, he's an absolute asshole to everyone, and everyone loves him for it. And, and he always has the answer. He's always got the explanation. So, um, As all doctors do. Absolutely, like yeah. the best doctors. That's yeah. what that's that's what they can do. And like all like good TV doctors as well. Like he thought therapy was a complete joke and no one should have it. And yeah, he uh, so so the solution presented itself through like all this methadrone um, in that I was now House. Um, I was Doctor House MD, and I started telling everyone like how great it was that you know we'd got a we we'd found an institution for our friend. We found a hospital to put him in, and I thought another one of my flatmates was like a nurse, and another one was like a visiting specialist, and it's like, we're going to talk about this, and everything's going to be great. And everyone was like looking at me. Everyone seemed like very confused, and I couldn't, I didn't know what they were confused about, and people were like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, what's going on? Like, oh, Hugh Laurie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm house. Yeah, <laughs> was this, like... this was your grandiose belief. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there was a lot of underpinning stuff. There was all this stuff where it was like, I'm going to go do psychology and I'm going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to get all these great answers and I'm, I'm going to make a difference and all of this stuff. In, in hindsight, like, I wasn't thinking about any of that in a particularly healthy or normal way, um, which I hadn't clocked at all. But, yeah, it kind of crystallised in this moment with, with the help, help of these drugs into into thinking I was this, like, mythically great doctor. And, and So you got left with all these drugs? Sorry? You got left with all these he, drugs? He used to give them to us. So oh, we're, right. we're all basically sat around a kitchen table taking drugs together. And, uh, and, and that's, yeah, that's when this happens, when I suddenly become house. And, uh, and I'm telling everyone that, you know, everything's going to be fine and we've worked it all out and we've worked out a plan. And I, I thought that, like, this flatmate of mine was somebody who I'd, I'd asked to come and visit to do, like, a mental health assessment. And I thought, like, my other flatmate was a nurse who'd come with them. It's probably the most mental health-themed mental health crisis yeah, that anyone's ever yeah. had. Um, and and, every, and I, I started to get, like, really, really confused because everyone else was so confused and I wasn't sure what was going on. And uh, then... I was a medic in the trenches in World War One, and everything was like in sepia, and like I wasn't in the room in- anymore, and the people I was with wasn't there. Like I was just completely some somewhere else. And then I was back, and I was house again, and I kind of looked at everyone. And I was like, "Something's going on," and they were like, "We know, mate. <laughs> like, we seriously know." And and I was really really confused about everything that was happening. And, um, and was that confusion something that you came to yourself, or was it coming from their confusion? So anything to start with, before like before I was a World War One medic, um, I was confused only at the fact that they were confused. Like I thought something was wrong with them. Um, and then when I shifted between being like in these basically these two realities that were kind of conflicting with one another. I, I could tell that there was a conflict between these between these two things, and I didn't I didn't know what was going on at all. Um, and that, that's when the bad happened. Yeah, exactly. I was able to like, and I feel very very fortunate for this, but I was able to recognise that kind of something something had gone seriously wrong, and um, and this is kind of the third moment of being very lucky in my life as well, because uh, what my mates did in response to this was they basically hold me up in one of their flats um because because why i don't know is that because they thought that you could be carted off is, I don't, is that it i don't know i, I imagine they just hind- want to keep you safe i think they wanted to keep me safe i imagine in hindsight as well like they were probably worried that they'd get in some kind of trouble because of the drugs yeah yeah um, <laughs> which were very legal yeah top. yeah you just um, growing plants oh so, yeah, I don't know how long I was confused for. Um, why? I'm, I'm intrigued to ask, why World War One medic? Got no idea. No? You no. said you like history and stuff. I did. Is that your war? Is World War One your war? I remember learning a lot about it in school. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I don't. I don't feel like I'm, I'm a firm believer in the meaning of these experiences, and uh, I'm sure if I sat down with like a skilled psychotherapist for a while and unpacked yeah. it for a long time I'm sure they'd have some interesting answers for me but I've got no idea I can tell you why I was house I've got an explanation for that like all this powerlessness and all this stuff but I've got no idea like because in, in this you know when I was in that trench I was uh, 
I, I wasn't powerful. I was terrified. Like, I, I was I was muddy and I was dirty and I was wet and I was cold and and, and confused as hell and I didn't know what was going on. Um, didn't. Did you have a concept of the enemy? No, I didn't. I I thought there was somebody whose life I was meant to be saving, which was kind of the link between the two. Do you think, like in both spaces, I thought there's somebody who I'm meant to be helping. Um, but in one, I felt very, very powerful, and and like I had all the answers, and that we had the plan, and it was going to go. And in the other, I felt completely, completely paralysed, completely like, you know, there's, there's somebody you're meant to be helping right now, and you can't, you just can't do it. You have to keep your head down. You have to stay alive. I was very confused for a while, and then I couldn't really remember anything for a while. And so you were holed up. Yeah, and I think, like, I feel a bit weird calling it, like, a psychotic episode as well, because I know, I know that methadrone does this to people. I know there are people who've had full-on, uh, you know, days and weeks-long periods of psychosis yeah. following taking this stuff. But... There's that story of that kid who, uh, like, hallucinated, like, a, a huge centipede on his crotch and then oh, no. mutilated his parts Jesus. because of it. And he was on methadrone. I got off bloody lucky. Yeah. I remember seeing. I remember seeing something where a family like went into the woods and took a bunch, and then they like thought each other were werewolves, and they had like this big shared hallucination, where they were running through the woods, like thinking that each other were werewolves. I imagine one of them was running around trying to calm everyone down. Yeah, and they were like seeing. Well, did they rip each other to pieces or what? No, no, no. Oh. They were they were fine. Like they were just because. Were they howling at least? I don't know. Mm. I don't know because I don't think anyone thought that they were a werewolf. I think everyone was thinking that everyone else was a werewolf. So it was just a lot of running away from each other. Well, um, werewolves are deeply ingrained in madness, though, aren't they? That's yeah, yeah, that lunatic. kind of frenzy, all mm. that kind of Foucauldian stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, then after that, didn't take my turn anymore. Yeah, um, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, no, it does, and. Um, and yeah, and then like in my in my second year of uni, I was coming back from having just done an exam. And what I used to do before exams, I wasn't good at revising, um, so I'd revise really, really hard for about a week beforehand, and I'd like drink loads of energy drink to uh, uh, to stay up. That's a familiar story, mm. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I'd be getting like one or two hours of sleep a night and drinking just tons and tons of energy drink and just revising constantly, and then doing going and doing like three or four exams. And um, I was walking home after having done one of these exams. And this is like a pattern that continues now. Like I do stress after I've done the thing. Um, so on the way home, everything's fine. I'm feeling good about how it went. And suddenly it feels like I'm having a heart attack. And it feels like I'm dying. And uh, I don't know what to do with that. I, I kind of, I sat down for a bit and it wasn't going away. And I managed to get the rest of the way home. And the only person who was in was my partner at the time, her brother, was uh, was in our house, and I walked in, and he was like, "You're all right." And uh, I, I said to him, "Can you just like feel my heart rate for me?" And and he did, and he kind of looked at me and was like, "What the fuck is going on?" And uh, and I was like, "I think I might be dying." And I said, to him, "I think I just need to sit down for a bit." And there was so much anxiety attached to like wrongly calling an ambulance. I was like, yeah. "Just got to sit down for a bit, wait this heart attack out, and see what happens." And um, and yeah, that was my first panic attack. And uh, I didn't know it was that. I didn't know it was that. And um, and a couple of months went by. And I was reading this this book. And it was about like just weird things that can happen. 
And in this book, there was this this concept uh, called a gamma ray burst. You ever heard of these? I don't know. So bursts of like gamma radiation fire out from the center of galaxies for no discernible reason. Right. At least at the time of writing of this book, they might know why. But what happens with is basically if one of these was to fire off for no reason and happened to be in our direction when it happened, everything on Earth would die. It wouldn't matter if you went underground, anything like that. Complete and total eradication for absolutely no reason, completely unpredictable, pretty much impossible to detect. And if it ever happened, um, you know, your warning would be that there'd be northern lights at the equator and then the next day everything would die. And <laughs> it's a cheery topic. Oh, so this is a real thing? Yeah, this is a real thing. Oh, it's another thing for me to walk around. Oh, sorry, man. completely scared of. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> and something just, again, the, the, I've got lots of, like, clicks in this story. Um, you know, things snapping into place. And something just snapped into place. And uh, then, then I was very, very scared that this was going to happen. Uh, to the point I couldn't sleep anymore. When I'd kind of come to terms with the fact that we're like tiny little bugs on a on a mossy rock that's hurtling through mm. space, and we probably don't have much control over that, um, I started to think I was like gonna have heart attacks or you know lung cancer or all of these things, and it would usually be when I was trying to sleep. So I basically just stopped sleeping, and um, and I was I was like I was panicking like every day, every single day. It was terrible. In fact, of all all of this mental health stuff, I've talked about all of it. Though that this was the worst. Six months of panic attacks was the absolute worst thing. And you were panicking over this gamma ray burst to start with. Yeah, yeah. And then, then it was kind of like I was. I think this is quite common. I was panicking over the panic attacks. Mm. Like I interpreted them as as dying, and so I used to constantly think I was dying over and over again. And um, and for a while, I was very much in a place where I'd get so exhausted, I'd get so tired that. I didn't care if I died or not, and so like every, like I'd have to get to that point to be able to sleep, um, and it was awful. It was so unbelievable. Really, awful. it sounds like a really good thing though, not being afraid to die. It, it was interesting because there, there, you know, there were definitely times in my life preceding this where I was quite o- occupied with thoughts of death. Mm. Like when when things were difficult. And every healthy human should be thinking of that stuff. I think at yeah. some point for a while. Mm. That's what makes us different. Is we know we're going to die. Yeah, and then there were there were definitely times like in my teenage years where you know whether or not I was going to die was a serious question that I was asking myself, um, and it was it was it was so frustrating. It was so disappointing that I'd finally got to this point where I was like, I pretty concretely want to live. Like, I, I can say that with absolute confidence. I want to live, and then. It's important to to mention I'm still at a point in this story where I've not done anything about all this stuff, all of this stuff. I've I've been, you know, by this point I've been doing it for like eight years, um, living with all this stuff in all of its different different forms. And but even, you know, whether it, whether it's a weird belief, whether it's depression, whether it's hurting yourself, whether it's getting drunk or taking loads and loads of drugs, or um, or now worrying that the world's going to end or that you're suddenly going to have a heart attack, it's all an expression of exactly the same thing, uh, which I still didn't know at the time. Um, do you know what that thing is now? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I'll get to that. 
Um, so, so yeah, I, I referred myself to IAPT, and that's when I became a service user. Yeah. Uh, and I find this interesting because, like, I always feel a bit wary about calling myself a service user or a survivor because service user, like, survivors, survivors rarely talk about surviving their kind of distress. They yeah. talk about surviving mental health services. Yeah. And I never felt like I had to survive mental health services. Like, I had some bad experiences in them, but the the, the real stuff that happened to me, like, the, the all of that stuff, I spent all my time not being a service user. I spent all of my time very intentionally, like, occasionally brushing up against services and then running the hell away from them, because that was my go-to strategy for anything that was difficult, was, like, you know, get high, go to Stoke, don't go to an appointment, just just run the hell away. But yeah, yeah, had some CBT for panic with uh, with a young woman who um, didn't like. You spend six months on a waiting list, so you've got a very long time to think about what's happening to you. And um, I need to thank my ex partner as well. She's the only reason I went to therapy um, <laughs> because eventually she kind of turned to me and was like, "You, you can't, you, you can't keep doing this. Like, you have to do something about this." So I did. Um, and and I went and I found it helpful, but you know I I didn't I didn't find my therapist very helpful at all. Uh, she wouldn't she wouldn't let me tell this kind of story that I'd come up with about why I was sat in front of her because we were here to think about what's going on now, which you know if if she was all I got if I if I hadn't if I'd felt so disempowered that I'd never gone and seen anyone else that's what I'd been stuck in and. I'd have slapped a band-aid on that kind of particular form and I'd be sat here with something else. I mean, I am sat here with something else, but it's a lot more kind of manageable. Yeah, she wasn't very helpful. And the thing that kind of ruined our relationship was when she said, oh, hi, James, it's good to see you. And uh, and James is not your name. James is not my name. Um, the most ba- basic of courtesies. Yeah, and I've had conversations with some of my mates who are service users as well. And they're like, oh, I wouldn't, you know, they, they were kind of like, it wouldn't bother me that much. But for me, like, it... It really, really kind of screwed things up for me. Um, yeah, and I went away from that. But the 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 CBT stuff for me, it's worth noting that I'm a Western man who's trained in psychology at this point. And at this point as well, um, God, I've got my times wrong because this is this is years later. I was working in mental health services at this point, so I'd gone like a couple of years before I read this book. Yeah. Um right, we this podcast is fairly pulp fiction esque. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, and I had a really good boss in this team as well and she was like really supportive of me going and like didn't make me make my time up or anything. And I went and saw an app service that was in the hospital that I was working in as well. So I just used to like nip off for an hour, have therapy and then come back to work. I found the C B T really helpful. And I think that's because it was kind of explicitly designed by people like me, for people like me. And it was really, really good at making the panic stuff go away. At the end of it, I was kind of sat there, and because for the first time I'd had somebody sat in front of me who was like, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go through this stuff and talk about it, even though her style of doing that didn't work for me at all and wasn't very helpful, and I didn't like her very much. She used to tell me about bloody holidays all the time. Oh, I it's, hate that. Oh God. And it's that, that those small talk moments that you have with mental health professionals are like always so awkward because mm. their holidays that they go on are vastly different to the holidays that I'd be going on. I know, exactly right. Like, she'd, she'd be 
telling me she'd be like, yeah, well, you know, we're getting away to Barbados for a couple of weeks, and, uh, and I'd be I'd be like, great. I hope mm. one day to go to Wales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be like, um, yeah, great. Like, yeah, the furthest I've been, furthest I've been at that point was to uh, Montenegro, and I could go there because uh, nobody else wanted to. Yeah. Um, and it was great. I recommend everyone do it. And it was the the yeah, unbelievably cheap holiday. <laughs> um, the 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 actual the actual therapy stuff was good, and it got me actually thinking more about you know what's actually going on back you know what's actually going on to make all this stuff happen. And I ended up referring myself back and being like, I've got low self esteem. I think that might actually be it. And it's a really boring kind of end to this mental health story yeah. um, it's only because the language is boring like. yeah and then like jumping back a bit I think as well one of the most useful things for me on this kind of journey was this uni I went to the psychology department it's great I remember getting to my third year and doing like the mental health module and which is normally this abnormal psychology thing that they talk about, uh, but at South Bank it's called Mental Health and Distress, and like, instead of, um, I remember like, there, there's, a le- there's a day's teaching about psychosis, or what we call psychosis, and it's titled Of Gods and Monsters, Ooh. and it's about religiosity and belief, and how dare we, how absolutely dare we say that one group of experiences is kind of socially acceptable, and another group isn't, and so critical, um, it was really, really good, and it just completely was just like, mind-blowing, to me, uh, like I'd come looking for this power and explanation, and what I, I'd actually found was uncertainty and an absence of explanation, and that's exactly what I needed. I, I needed, you know, something to to say to me. Well, you know, actually, it's all it's all just it, it's experience. It's an uncertain mix of things. It's you know, we're not necessarily going to have explanations for all of this stuff because you can't generalize people like that. It was absolutely transformative. It's brilliant. It's always good to ask in in educational settings. I think questions are the best mm. thing, aren't they? Rather than answers. Yeah. I think too much of the education system is geared around just giving people the answer rather than getting them to ask the right questions. Absolutely, absolutely. I was reading a guy recently, a really good book on this stuff um, called Paulo Freire. I think his name is. It's called uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and it's about how you can liberate people through education. And it's kind of explicitly about teaching people to ask questions instead of teaching them anything else. Yeah, I mean, also you can just oppress everyone with education as well. Yeah, right. Okay. That's exactly yeah. his point. Yeah, education's about kind of dominant ideologies mm. and, and convincing people of them. Because um, when yeah, like so many times at school, I'd ask a question and get like taken out of the class for asking a question. Yeah, no, I remember this. <laughs> they might have been fairly cheeky questions. Yeah, but still. Well, cheekiness is good. It means you're engaged. Yeah. You're, well, yeah. You're, you're, you know, cheekiness is kind of an enthusiasm, isn't it? Mm. You're thinking about what you're doing. They don't see it that way, though. The teachers, they've got to keep order. Yeah, I mean, there. Are, I think it's like anything, isn't it? I think there's a lot of very good, passionate people working in spaces that don't don't afford them, you know, what it is they want to be. And as always, there are some crap ones as well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, referred myself back, and my current understanding of this thing, and it goes back to this idea of reality and this gravity thing that I was talking about, is 
I think when you're a child, you and you've not got these experiences, and you don't know maybe that the things people tell you aren't true, particularly, you know, the things your parents tell you. And for me, that was reality-shattering. Well, that, that's actually what happened. The, the laws of reality didn't work anymore, and I came up with a new one um, that, that made more sense, and it led me down a path, um, and um, a path that ended up being an absolutely terrible one to go down, and in, in many ways could have been a lot worse as well, um, particularly if I, I think, ended up in like inpatient psychosis services or mm. something like that. That could have gone really badly for me. Um, you can have a lot of fun in, in mental hospitals as a mental patient, though. Yeah, I listened I to the first two yeah. episodes of yeah. this and that. Yeah, that, I, I really I forget the name of the chap you spoke to, Luke. but Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. his 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 story of uh, of you know waking up every day in hospital and being like, this is great. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. But yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty glad. I'm pretty glad I dodged it, to be honest. Um, and yeah, so so when all these when all these people told me. When I got to school and all these people told me that I wasn't deserving of being a human or that I wasn't deserving of love, and I'm really into love these days, uh, it's a, you know, I, I, it's, I'm really into uh, kind of compassionate focused work and self-compassion and things like this. I think they're so, so important. Do you think that has a link with the World War One medic thing? I don't know. And also like the world at threat from the gamma ray bursts? I feel like a lot of the what we call psychosis stuff is intertwined with people really caring about the world because so much, so many people have those um, big ideas about there being an apocalypse coming or I've got to tell everyone that the world's going to end Yeah, and it comes from like a, a place of them caring too much almost yeah I hadn't I'd never thought about that like that before but yeah, I think that's that's a really insightful point, actually. I like that a lot. Because people say that thing about um, people that have psychosis are highly sensitive people. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've heard of this thing before. I think a lot of people who get uh, diagnosed, I don't believe in this thing, but people who get diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder as well, uh, there's a lot of kind of crossover between the concept of the highly sensitive person oh, yeah. and and this and uh and and I like the highly sensitive like the idea of the highly sensitive person a lot because it's not you know it's 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 not a box it doesn't it's why I quite like the idea of uh low self-esteem as well because it, it doesn't fit like CBT yeah. has a really hard time with uh with the idea of low self-esteem because it's not like a diagnostic category and yet you know, when when you work in services, it underpins so much yeah. of of what people come in for. Is at some point in at some point in somebody's life, some someone has usually unintentionally convinced them that, that there's just something wrong with them. Mm. Well, it's the whole world, isn't it? The whole world is geared towards telling people what they should be or what they need to buy to become what they should be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and that the, there's this thing called normal, and mm. that normal is white and male and adult as well. It's a mm. big one. Yeah, um, and and you know, wealthy and and that if you're not this, then you're something else that's unusual, and you'll be you'll be defined as this kind of unusual thing. And then we sit here and we're like, oh, why is it? You know, why is it poor people who are accessing mental health services? 
Why is, why, why are there like racial disproportion sometimes? Mm. So how come twice as many women than men are getting all these mood and anxiety disorder diagnoses? Yeah. And it's like, well, first of all, they have to live with us, uh, which you know. But aren't they more likely to go to the doctors as well than men? Yeah, yeah, because right. um, looking after yourself is feminine, and femininity is degrading. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and when you're a man, you don't want to waste the doctor's time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... I'd it's, rather die of cancer than have someone, like, feel your balls or something. Yep, mm. patriarchy, eh? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. good for everyone. Um, that was definitely sarcasm, by the way, <laughs> for, any, for anyone who's it's sarcastically so, challenged. It's okay, yeah. <laughs> All of this podcast is for entertainment purposes, aren't it? Mm. Yeah. No, it's... It's fascinating to me that we, we set society up in such a way that it will systematically persecute so yeah. many people within it. Yeah. And then when these persecuted people experience some kind of distress, we all stand around scratching our heads and wondering what what bio, what kind of bio you know what aspect of this biology could have caused this. And it's just completely yeah. nuts. It's not <laughs> all these systems just working together to just pummel you into the ground. Yeah, it can't be that. And and I think it's so kind of threatening to the self esteem of those in power. To to say well actually mm. actually maybe it's us like one of the hardest things one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is um, is be like well yeah no I, I was raised with some sexist beliefs and I was raised with some with some racist beliefs and and these are something that you you have to hold like yeah it's so easy to, for people to turn around and be like yeah I'm not racist and I'm not sexist and it's like Everyone on Earth is absolutely yeah, everyone, and even lions are racist in many ways. Really? Yeah, they do that thing where like they see other species and they send different numbers of lionesses out, depending on the threat of the species. Wow! Because they know that some are more dangerous than others. That's interesting. Though presumably there's like some some kind of fact base to this, unlike what humans do yeah. with yeah. humans who look or sound slightly different to them. Yeah, you'd think so, yeah. It's also funny how the lionesses end up doing all the hard work with lions. Yeah. So, in a few million years, when lions have uh, evolved thumbs, they'll be setting up mental health services and scratching their heads and being like, why is it that women keep going mad? Yeah. So, so they keep having to deal with the hyenas and stuff. That's probably just a wandering womb, mate. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Essentially, what happened was when reality was being created and it was still kind of mutable and uh, and changeable, a bunch of people decided to go out their way to tell me that I wasn't worthy of these things, and I believed them. And and it stuck. And it very, very, probably the most in, uh, effective kind of mental health intervention I've ever had in my life. They directly intervened in my mental health, and uh, and they they changed it fairly permanently. Who are they again? Well, they, these uh, these kids at school. Yeah. I grew up with. Um, and yeah, I guess you're right. The the kind of world at large and the way things are set up, how we're all meant to compete with each other. Mm. Neoliberalism. So is a yeah. good word to chuck out there. But yeah, yeah, it was good. And the 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 therapist I had, as well. She was incredible. She was, she was there. She was on it. She was present. She was um, a really good person. And uh, yeah, I owe her a lot. It's funny, actually, how um, how it seems to be like this. I think there have been three female characters in this story, or four female characters in this story, who who I pretty much owe my well-being to. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Well, generally, women are much nicer than men. Yes, 
They have to be because we kill them when they're not. Yeah. So now you're. Is that is that the the mad story wrapped up? You think? Is that are we in present day? Yeah, yeah. I think we're in present day. I, I still do peculiar things. Like I, I still have odd little panicky things, and um, uh, when I get stressed out, I hallucinate, which is new. Um, I see bugs. Um, don't know why. Don't like bugs. Um, I'm sure you don't like bugs. I don't like bugs. This is spider central. This this room. Don't tell me that. I'll start. Like, I hoovered all the sc- spiders webs away the other day. Though, so you should be okay. Excellent. And I put peppermint oil down. And they Thank hate you. that. I'm they hate peppermint. That's <laughs> why they never brush their teeth. Excellent. I like that. That's a good dad mm. joke. Cheers. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not going to have any children, so I have to no. get them out somewhere. Yeah. So now you're going into the belly of the beast. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm becoming what you swore to destroy. I wouldn't like Darth Vader. quite go that far, but uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting thing because. Um, yeah, I, I became an assistant psychologist for a few years, and uh, and I started doing some teaching at this university, work, working for for this woman, um, Paula. Uh, and assistant psychologist, what what are you assisting with? Yeah, just kind of helping. Do you to have look to after. answer their emails and all that stuff? No, 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 that's good. No, no, just just yeah, just helping out with the. Uh, the kids we were working with, it wasn't it wasn't much of an assistant psychology post either, to be honest. But um, but it was all right, and it was it was a cool team. They were trying to do something very new and interesting. They were trying to be an alternative to inpatient. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a good little thing. Um, what like a crisis house or something? No, no. Um, so it had a day service, mm. but we were a team, so we'd come to you. Um, that that was kind of our main thing, and uh, and it was kind of like you know. Six days a week. Um, this, this six thing. days. Yeah, this thing. on a Saturday. Yeah, technically we were like eight to eight um, Monday through Saturday, but none of us were actually in the office on Saturday. So it was only like if there was a crisis or if we were worried that somebody, you know, could use a little bit extra looking after, um, then then that was always there. And it was, I mean, it's still going. What they were doing is a really really good idea. Yeah. Well. Seems like a good idea to be around when people are around. If you want to help people, yeah, right? because their problems don't live in hospital, do yeah, they? Yeah. And they don't—they don't live in them. You can't bring a person into hospital and bring all their problems with them. Our, our problems live outside. They're in our houses and our relationships and mm. our jobs, uh, or with these kids. They're in their schools. Um, and you make new problems whenever you bring someone into a, your environment. Yeah, and and I think in many ways that's what this team was kind of set up around because there are so many people. You know, you take them, you put them in a hospital. People learn things in hospitals. Mm. Oh, like yeah. They, you know, if, if you stick somebody in an understaffed hospital, it's not long before they learn the lengths they have to go to to get the attention that they need. Um, and I would like to be very, very clear that when I say attention, I'm, I'm not talking about, like, attention-seeking or anything like yeah. this. We all need... The care they, yeah, they we, need. Yeah, we all need attention. Yeah, from, yeah it's part of being human, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah care's definitely, definitely a better word. Um, but... If you stick someone in an environment with, you know, ten other people who are all varying levels, varying levels of and, and forms and shapes of distress, mm. and, uh, and and the people working there are kind of operating under this paradigm where before anything else they're thinking about risk and yeah. everything's saturated with risk all and the time. Risk can never be a good thing. Yeah, and 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 that's what you teach. The riskiest person gets the most love. 
and it's not necessarily love. It's but it's the, the, the kind of closest thing to it that's on tap. Um, They're not allowed to call it love, though. No, no. Medicine's not allowed to call what they do don't a form ab- of love, are they? Don't be absurd. Yeah. It threatens our masculinities. Well, even like the like mental health nurses, a lot of them are women, and it, like I've interviewed a lot of them, and I, I have asked some of them, like, oh, would you consider what you do giving love? And they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Is, is it unprofessional to, to give love? I think it's I think it's a very difficult thing to think about, isn't it? Because you're not you're not going to be in somebody's life. I you know you're there for a reason and I think like if we use me as an example somebody who had all this stuff happening to them and it all tracks back to somebody having you know convinced me that um, that that love isn't a thing that I deserve then somebody calling what they're doing love would have been really very unhelpful for me and even if I found it very very helpful it would have all disappeared like they'd, they'd have come at a certain point, mm. and that that would have gone away. So it's an interesting thing because I think we should be more loving. I think we are definitely in impatient units, um, but in all in all aspects of it, we should be more loving. We should be more compassionate. That's the word, isn't it? Compassion. Yeah. It's a more um, tangible mm. thing than love. Yeah, and uh, I think there, there's a there's a lot of space for kind of respecting the human. That you know, some people do brilliantly and some don't, and we we could spend more time than we currently do thinking about that. Maybe thinking a little bit less about risk and liability oh, yeah. and investigations and things like this, and and a little more about you know about care and how to negotiate that as well, because because there are people who desperately need you know long term compassion or love or care or whatever you want to call it um, in their lives and should that come from mental health professionals? Mm. I don't I don't feel it should short term, definitely, but it's, you're subjecting a person to a lot by giving them that and taking it away from them Yeah, yeah. it's a weird thing whenever you work with like a, someone who's a mental health professional and you, you make like really good friends with them, almost you, you sort of... Um, it sort of helps and hinders in, in many ways, I think, doesn't it? Because sometimes you, you don't want to let them down because they've become like your friend. Yeah. So you won't speak the truth or just because you're friends with them, it allows you to speak more truth sometimes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we have this idea, uh, this this therapeutic relationship that yeah. we want to talk about. And I, I did some research with some of these young people that my team worked with. And uh, one, one of the main things that they'd quite reliably say to us is kind of fuck the therapeutic relationship. We want a relationship. Like yeah. We want we want something that doesn't feel hidden and boundaried and dressed up in. Yeah, synthesised, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And and some people provide that and, and some people don't. And I don't know whether it's about like discomfort or stigma or, or, or I, I think it's fear is definitely in there, fear of liability. Uh, you, you said unprofessional, which, you know, what is a professional? How does a professional act? How do they behave? How they're told to yeah. by their profession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, except there's so much kind of range, there's so much diversity bet- between how people are acting in these professions. Mm. And, you know, what what does that actually mean in practice? Um, are people hiding when they're being unprofessional? I remember hearing a conversation once where... There, there was so my team used to be based on a ward, even though we weren't part of the ward. And I remember hearing a 
conversation once between some staff members where it was kind of like, yeah, the new nurse is down there and she's like having her hair plaited by one of the girls. Uh, it was an adolescent unit. And um, and it, it was with these tones of like, oh, I don't think she should be doing that. I don't think she should, yeah. should be doing that. And I overheard it and I was thinking to myself, why? Yeah. Why on earth? You know, what, what, what else have they got on? <laughs> like... You know they're they're not they're not kind of thrilling places to be, are they? Um, and and that's that. There's something so brilliantly human and and loving about mm. the act of of like you know doing something with someone's hair or yeah yeah. It's like grooming, like chimps do. Yeah, right. Yeah, something kind of basic to mm. to to kind of the core of our beings. Yeah, is is having things like that happen. And I was thinking, you know, what are you worried about? What what are the consequences? of this in your mind it's the unknown isn't it they don't know what's going to happen so they don't want to risk it yeah could be or you know maybe they've got this idea of just what a professional is and what a professional is meant to do or maybe they thought that that person was taking strands of hair out and make a ligature later yeah yeah Yeah. they thought they were secretly making a noose with the hair day by day very good yeah I hope they conducted a full risk assessment Yeah. yeah but if they'd have put that in the risk assessment that's the sort of thing that en- ends you up in a mental hospital, thinking those too far risky, right? Yeah. That's too paranoid of a risk assessment. Yeah, could well be. Could well be. And I, I, I find risk to be this really interesting thing to think about, because first of all, aren't we meant to have the right to take risks? Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but all the best things that have ever happened to me have come as a consequence of taking risks. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, I definitely agree. Like every time you cross the road. Yeah. And and also like the risk assessments we do, they've got really bad predictive validity. Uh, they're they're really bad at actually predicting behaviour. Yeah. Uh, so is that right? Yeah, that's true. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, that, yeah, because I know they're not very good at predicting when people are going to kill themselves. Yeah. 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 No, just, just as as a general rule, like they're they're just not. Why I mean, do they do it then? Well, it's liability. If somebody uh, this this isn't actually the answer. I'm giving a very biased answer right now. But one of the reasons is because if somebody d- goes and does something and there's an investigation and your risk assessments aren't done, mm. then you can get in trouble. So it's all about them, isn't it? <laughs> definitely not making that claim, but it's definitely a motivating factor when you do them. Um, and and I think it was, as well. It just it's like it's almost it's professional habit. It's just like it's part of your job. This happened. Do a risk assessment. A week's gone by. Do a risk assessment. You know, we had a CPA meeting. Do a risk assessment. Uh, and, it's so time consuming, though. Yeah, and and you don't think about why it is you're actually doing the thing. Mm. But I really like this point you made about like unreasonable beliefs. So we're doing something that we know doesn't actually predict behaviour. We're making decisions about somebody's freedoms based off of it. What an unreasonable set of things to do, and it's so obviously kind of about anxiety. But when you're a professional, you're not allowed to be anxious. Mm. Professionals aren't anxious. So we have one set of treatments for kind of anxious clients, and one set of treatments for anxious professionals. And the ones for the anxious professionals aren't evidence-based at all, because we've studied them and they don't work. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, it just... It doesn't make sense. Like the definitions that that underpin why you go away and do all of these these risk assessments are, like you said, they're the same definitions for why some people might be in hospital in the first place. Just a, an unreasonable yeah. set of beliefs that don't do anything and and waste a lot of time and uh, and cause a lot of distress. They must realise that though. You realise that the people that do it must have a an idea that 
the risk assessment they're doing is most probably pointless. Yeah, I imagine so. And um, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, if I know one thing with absolute certainty about mental health services, it's that they are full of very caring, Mm. very intelligent people um, who are doing their absolute best every single day to help people. And it's not true of everyone. It's it's absolutely not true of everyone. You you just need to, you know, go on Twitter for five minutes and uh, yeah, and then you'll you'll find an absolute outpouring of of you know awful tales of the way people have been treated. Um, yeah, there there are there are so many people who just really really care and are doing their best in systems that are under resourced, underfunded, um, and and set up in ways that aren't helpful and are often set up in ways you know that that are led by people who've got no experience of working in mental health services yeah and that's a bigger problem than just mental health as well isn't it because that's how politics works isn't it like the guy who's minister of transport has he ever even been on a train you know yeah wasn't what was george osborne's degree in was it like journalism or something i don't know you get a, a lot of like they put him in charge of the economy. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, it's not got a degree in economics. Yeah, I'd, I'd want. Which like, doesn't make any sense, does it? Maybe twenty guys with with very like extensive uh, educations and experience in economics to be to be uh, in charge. Yeah. And we, you know, I suppose it's not that important anyway. The economy it doesn't really affect anything, really, does no, it? No, absolutely not. I mean, what are we talking about economics for? This is about mental health. There's, yeah. there's no link between those two things. Yeah, like, the you know that map of the people, the places that take the most antidepressants happen to be in the most poorest parts of the country. There's a really good map of it, and it's like, well, I guess all those people just decided to move to these really bad places. Yeah, no, of course, that's... Makes perfect sense, doesn't we, it? We congregate. Well, yeah, just like uh, the genetic, it's, it proves that it's genetics, right? That these people stay here forever and they keep reproducing more unhappy people. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. That's, um, yeah, good theory. Uh, must just be something fundamentally wrong with, with these people. I'm, I'm really into uh, this idea that, like, all of our water filtration systems, like, can't handle the, uh, the drugs that people are constantly pissing out. Yeah. And um, I know they've, they've done work in America where they've, They've caught a bunch of fish and tested them and found clinically significant levels of uh, antidepressants in the fish. So they should be happier that we're destroying the ocean. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to begin answering that. You'd think they'd be more grateful. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Just kind of in a chemical stupor. All those whales. Yeah. Pissing and moaning. All those microbeads. Should get over it. Yeah. Pull their socks up. Give them some socks. Thin socks. They don't know much about whales anyway, do they? They don't know where they go half the time, right? Like yeah. blue whales, they, they're these huge things, but they don't actually know where they go most of the time. That's probably for the best. Yeah. I, think I like to speculate. Maybe like Mar-a-Lago? Where's that? It's that sounds the, exotic. It's the resort that Trump owns. Oh. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's just just whales. Thing. Maybe it's been, like, maybe, maybe he's not that bad a guy. He's just been concealing that he's been protecting the whales this whole time. That would be one hell of a twist. That would be. Uh, maybe it's just me being hopeful. I do have a feeling that he, he's actually just an old racist. But um, yeah. But but maybe maybe this whole time he's been like just protecting the whales and playing a distraction game. He's he's worse than a racist, obviously. 
Yeah, he it's is. Beyond but it's words. But there's just so much to cover. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's difficult. That that would be a whole other thing. It's like the crystallized madness of neoliberalism. All mm. yeah, the he, perfect villain. Yeah, he's like the logical conclusion to what we've been doing for the last hundred years. Do you feel sorry for him? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. If I didn't practice compassionate <laughs> meditation every single day, I'd probably say no. Yeah. But um, but no, I actually I, this is shameful to admit, but I think about Trump sometimes when when I'm meditating um, because one part of it is to think about somebody you have a lot of difficulty with and uh, and try your hardest to love them, which is. That's a challenge. It is. Yeah. It's a tough one. Um, he might be a really nice guy if you just met him and you didn't know who he was and he's like giving you all this gold. Yeah, I mean, based on literally every account I've read by anyone who's yeah. ever had any kind of interaction with the man, I'd, uh, I'd assume probably not. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, he's not a very nice person, it seems, from everything he uh, does in his life. But yeah. hey, might have uh, had a difficult upbringing surrounded by gold. Yeah, I mean, his dad was uh, famously, famous, like, uh, attended, like, race rallies and things like this, was very anti-people uh, who didn't look like him. Mm. Um, and then this is an interesting question, isn't it? Because if you, if somebody, it, you know, it's back to this idea of reality being this shapeable thing, isn't it? If, if you raise somebody with a set of truths, then how what extent to which can you judge the final form of that person or the form of that person that you're confronted with when when you know this is this has always been truth to them what about the big question then you've got baby hitler baby hitler would i kill baby hitler yeah i think i'd be more tempted <laughs> to like steal baby hitler or maybe steal him steal baby just hitler oh just just find somebody to adopt baby hitler i don't think there's there was ever anything fundamental to hitler that made that happen. Like, I think we forget that. Um, I don't know how this has become like a Hitler podcast. But... It's, it's always got to come down to some Nazis eventually. Hasn't always it? got to be just Hitler. What we do. Yeah. Um, Nazis. It's what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I, I. I think we like to forget that fascism was very, very popular in like the UK and America, and um, and in fact, all over the Western world, fascism was an incredibly popular ideology, and it was. Oh God, there's a question, isn't it? Um, like fascism fell out of favour, kind of as a consequence of Hitler invading everybody, mm. and then the Holocaust, and and you know, um, scientific racism was, uh, which is is a term, and it is in no way actually scientific, um, but yeah. was extremely popular in pretty much the entire Western world yeah. at that well, time. Churchill was he was at the first the first annual committee of eugenics wonderful in 1919 i think he was like an honorary member of the chair i can believe that something like that i mean if you, you get things like the uh, the tuskegee experiments oh um, i heard of that is that when he went hitler sent the guys around some part of europe measuring people no uh, in america they infected poor black communities oh, yeah, with yeah, syphilis, syphilis yeah. um to to kind of chart the progression of the disease and see if they could come up with a treatment. And then penicillin was invented, which is very effective, but they just kept the trial going mm. um, and, and didn't treat the people. And of course, syphilis eventually kind of destroys your brain. Um, but 
I can't remember when it ended, but it's one of these things where you look at the date it ended and you're like, it can't be. Yeah. It can't be like that it wasn't recently. That long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And and they didn't tell a lot of the people that they were participating as well, which is kind of day one at research ethics school. Yeah. It's uh. So yeah, it was. I, I, I bet there's still loads of science guys who are really pissed off that they ruined that. that oh, absolutely. Ep- that ethical loophole. Yeah. There's I, so many things you just can't study ethically. Yeah. That could potentially be helpful, but just blocked off. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of science guys who are actually doing this work, um, like in in medicine and in medicine and psychiatry and psychology. We've got a lot to atone for. Yeah. We do. Um, well, medicine itself is sort of, but well, modern medicine specifically, like anatomy and stuff, is just founded on digging up bodies and illegally sort of just uh, destroying them, right, yeah. piece by piece to learn how they worked. And there was a really healthy trade in the unusual ones as well, which is pretty cool. If uh, you go to the, uh, there's a museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and there's this skeleton of like a really, really tall guy and he was like nicknamed the Irish giant or something and uh, because like body snatching and um, steal and, and selling bodies on for you know surgeons collections and things like this was so rife at the time he paid a guy gave a guy a lot of money to uh, to dispose of his corpse at sea because he kept getting well, like when he when he was getting older he kept on getting offers from various like get letters through the mail from surgeons being like I'll pay your fu- funeral costs and give you this amount of money or this amount of money to your descendants if I can have your body after you die and he didn't want that to happen so he paid this guy and um, the guy took, pocketed the money and then after he died sold him to a surgeon and um, and his skeleton his skeleton is still in this museum with this little plaque explaining why the skeleton's there so even in kind of post-modernity you can find yourself stood in front of the remains of this guy who explicitly asked for one thing mm-hmm. and that was not to be where he currently is doing what he currently is. And every and, day it's there, it's just like pissing yeah. on his memory. Yeah, with with the actual story. Like yeah. with with an explanation of how you came to be desecrating his remains. <laughs> like yeah. sat in front of him. And so it's it's two thousand seventeen and nobody nobody has like we we're obviously still so clueless about the basic idea of respecting people's wishes, but nobody has gone, hold on a minute, it, it actually said, no, Jesus, it said under just under his feet this entire time that this is the opposite of what he wanted. Mm. Maybe we should just bury the guy. And people just walk past, like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly, and, and crucially, they keep him there. Yeah. It's... It's, do, you, do you think uh, people are too uncynical about medicine, generally? Yeah, absolutely. Considering it's past, like, because everyone, like, two hundred years ago, everyone was really scared of doctors, weren't they? Mm. It'd be something you just run away from if if there was a doctor coming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as a rule, people aren't nearly cynical enough about like the idea that there that there are medical explanations for things. Although mm. there's people talk a lot about biological explanations, and I um I have trouble with this because we're Everything is always going to be biological, isn't it? Like we're we're yeah. biological beings. It's our only mm. like it's ca- everything's chemical, isn't it? Like this table is a chemical. Yeah, yeah. And if we well, more than one probably, but if if we like ignore the human soul, which I'm not sure whether there is one or not, but if if we we can't see that that's there in any meaningful way, so if it's not, then the only way we have of interacting with anything is uh, 
is through our biology. So, of course, biology is going to play a part in everything, but it yeah. just drives me nuts that there's constantly this, this idea of, like, you know, there's some kind of chemical imbalance and we just need to fix that. And it's like, but what... Okay, even if there is a chemical imbalance, and the science behind that is shaky, but even if there is one, what caused that? Because we are biological beings. Our biology reacts to our environment. Yeah, and that's the crucial point, isn't it? Yeah, and I think in the in the DSM, there is only one diagnosis in the entire book that addresses the fact that um, that something external might have caused... Yeah. This kind, this kind of. Which one is it? I think I know. It's a uh, PTSD. Yeah, 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 that's what I thought. Yeah. When I say something external, something external and non-physical yeah. might have, uh, or non-developmental might have caused this stuff, and it's, it's like, but surely by now, most people are operating under the realization mm. that that people have crap lives, and. Uh, I think they're they're just not because it's too big of a, a, a problem, isn't it? Like. You know, it becomes more than a mental health problem whenever we say that or admit that, that it's a societal thing. It's much easier to just say, this guy needs to sort himself out, then we all need to get our shit together. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think, um, like, there, there's so much power at stake. Mm. Oh, yeah, and the money. Yeah. Oh, the money. Though, you know, investment in uh, in new psychiatric drugs is really dropped off apparently um, and like the amount of money being made from them is going downhill instead of uphill that's the last thing I heard I could be completely wrong it might have just been a blip so yeah. there was something about Trump coming into power <laughs> and uh, back so, to Nazis some, yeah yeah some effect it had on the pharmaceutical stock market I'm, I'm just gonna like, I've got no information on this but I'm just gonna guess that it's doing better than it was I have a feeling it's the opposite. Oh, gone down. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stop talking now because I do that thing where I think I know what I'm talking about, and I open my mouth, and then I've got no idea what I'm saying. So it's a podcast. Yeah, you just got Google. Google's out there. Yeah, yeah. People listen to this have got the internet, I presume, so they can just Google that. If you if you tweet something unpleasant at John after this, letting him know if he was right or wrong. Yeah, they um, yeah, all those people block me anyway. There are some amazing psychiatrists on Twitter. uh, Yeah, they've blocked me, so it's a shame I can't bask in their amazingness. Absolutely unbelievable. I I had a really wonderful conversation with a a French psychiatrist on Twitter. Oh, yeah, is that the one I know? um, It's probably, by the grin on your face, I reckon probably the same lady. Um, Yeah, no, it, it was really weird to have a psychiatrist yelling fake news at me. Oh, yeah, yeah, again. that's me. Yeah, they said I'm like like Trump or something. They called me like I'm just like one of Trump supporters something. Yeah, yeah it was weird because she was like using the language of Trump supporters yeah. and then calling people Trump supporters as a way to deride them. And it's like the subject being discussed at the time was that there may be abuses in psychiatry's past. Yeah, which and is there, isn't it? Like, you know... Yeah, it's... Nazi it's, Germany, wasn't it? Like, yeah, it's like Hitler the, was like, hey guys, hey psychiatrists, I've got this idea. And they're like, great, yeah. someone's come along, this is just what we've been wanting to do forever. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly kind of inarguable position, but she was she was right there being like, no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never happened! And uh, you're like, fake news, fake news! And I remember her saying that and just replying to her and being like, so Foucault is fake news? And... Mm. Um, that was she. She didn't reply to me, which was sad. But um, I was hoping I could like appeal to her European sensibilities no. by bringing up Foucault and being like, 
quite... She hates British. So That one hates the British. Oh, does she? Yeah, she's always saying, like, British people are like this, so that's a problem with you British people. It's like, wow, you seem really nice. I wonder what it's like to be one of her patients. Yeah, that's, that's the worrying thing as well. Yeah. yeah. Those people actually have positions of power. Yeah. Um, more important than Twitter stuff. I do. I do honestly think like there, there should be some kind of body. Like if if somebody's job is to care for other people, there mm. should, should be some capacity to be like, oh well, if if you actually look, this is, this is a person who, you know, their their major hobby on the internet appears to be abusing people. Yeah, um, and then saying that they're getting abused when you try and yeah. reason with them. And it would be nice if you could submit that to to some kind of body yeah. and be like actually quite concerned about this maybe we need to have a think about that but um yeah yeah one of them called me a sheep once because i um just believed in certain things that they didn't believe in right and then yeah they that same person blocked me they're a psychiatrist and they blocked me because i said um maybe you could suspend some of your expertise for a moment and listen to what people actually experience they're like, how dare you suggest you give up expertise? I give up expertise. Would you say that to a surgeon? So, well, that's kind of missing the point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you see a surgeon if you have a health problem. That's a major difference. Ooh. Yeah? yeah. Go on. <laughs> Elaborate. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's everything we've been talking about, isn't yeah. it? Like, they're not health problems, are they? They're, no. they're social problems. Does health even exist, though? Is that even a thing? Well, I think I think you can say physical health is a thing that exists. Yeah. I think it's it's a pretty it's a woolly concept, isn't it? Is anyone healthy though? Does anyone have or ever attain health? <sighs> yeah, but in like specific domains, and the domains aren't real because they're things that we construct, and it just gets woolly all the way down. But um, you can always be healthier, but you can never be healthy. Yeah, and I, I think you know it's a dimensional thing. It's like the dude who invented jogging had a heart attack jogging. Like, dude jogged too much. Jogging's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> jogging healthy too much jogging not healthy mm. heart attack um, but you know healthy weight we're obviously it's variable by individuals and uh, there are you know racial factors and and things like this but I think with physical health it's fairly easy to say actually we've noticed that people between this weight and this weight get these diseases a lot less and tend to live a lot longer and all of these things and obviously that's complicated because people who are between this weight and this weight are you know, bound to have loads of other social factors and yeah. lots of differences and things like that. But I think you can point at a particular weight and saying, regardless of the explanation for that weight, that's a healthy weight. <laughs> that's that's what we know. But um, yeah, it gets a lot messier, doesn't it, when when you're faced with someone who's had an awful lot of stuff happen to them and they're coping with it in a particular way, mm. and it's not a way that society is prepared to listen to or handle. Um, and and when this happens, we have an alternative narrative for it, and it's it's an illness narrative. It's you know, oh, the, the problem is that this person's mentally ill. That's never the problem. It's the it's a consequence of the problem. The the things. It it might be the solution. It might be the solution to the problem, depending on who yeah. you're talking to. Yeah. And you know, automatically assuming that that you have to do something with that is. It's bizarre, but I think I think there are lots of people out there who have experiences that aren't kind of socially acceptable and who are actually just fine, and they conceal them because because of the risk of being yeah. defined as ill. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, when you reveal it, 
Yeah. That's when uh, problems happen. Yeah. And, you know, I take pleasure in revealing it. Yeah. I enjoy uh, it a lot. I do experts by experience teaching. I do things like this. Um, there is a worry in the back of my mind that, yeah. like, where's my professional future going uh, after this podcast? But I think we, <laughs> we, we could... That's all right. Yeah, we could stand... Yeah, you haven't said anything like, you know, if Trump was on his podcast mm. and he said what he thinks. Yeah. He wouldn't lose his job. <laughs> it's not the most reassuring thing. We live in a time where the, the, the leader of the free world can go on Twitter and start sharing stuff that's just like hideous in every regard, and he's still in charge. Yeah, he's got like uh, his finger on the button. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't so, he routinely call a uh, somewhat Native American senator Pocahontas? He nicknames her it and repeatedly calls her it. Wow. Yeah. And um, that's that's something. Mm. <laughs> yeah so it could always be worse I suppose there, there is something funny about how like we can just say stuff and like that could, we could get in trouble for it because there's yeah. these like really powerful people and systems that could yeah. judge us and say like oh that's dangerous to think that yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hardly being very professional right now am I and and I do this I do this curious thing like we, we came to this like mystery year where um, I was like I'm not going to talk about that but after that and I, I find that like I give I give different bits of this yeah. to different people and there are some bits that I've never given to anyone and I don't know if I ever will and it's interesting because like I've been I've been in my cohort on this on this course I'm doing for um, for Oh, I don't know, like two months now, and they are. I was so worried, and they are just wonderful. They are honestly. What were you worried about? I was worried <clears throat> about that you'd be the black sheep. I was worried that I'd be, yeah, I'd be walking into like a, a group of people who who really buy into all this illness stuff, and I was worried that there'd like be no space for. Uh, I wasn't worried. I mean, the the uni I go to is um, is fairly notorious actually for being for being critical it's kind of their main thing is they want to criticize everything which is why I wanted to go there and um and I wasn't worried about the teaching but I was kind of worried that I'd show up in this place and there'd be a sizable portion of people who through no fault of their own were saying things that I'd find to be quite offensive because yeah. they just wouldn't know they don't know any better some of them yeah and and the truth of the matter is that's that's not a thing. Um, they're they're absolutely fantastic. It's, it's something we talk about a lot together. Actually, is how lucky we are to have each other. Um, yeah, really, really. I've forgotten why I've gotten to this point. I'm just like getting all emotional about my cohort here. <laughs> uh, you call them your cohort? Is that what like? Uh, isn't that like Rome, the Romans used to? Yeah. They have like a, yeah, they used to have my cohorts. Cohort. But it's it, like the army. It's a thing in like. I'm not sure if it's a thing for other courses, but I know, like in nursing, yeah, yeah. in nursing, funny. it's like cohorts. Yeah, it's just funny how words change over time. Yeah, we should all. Uh, so you, all like... you guys are going to go and change the mental health system, right? So I can, if I go to sleep <laughs> for like twenty years, and wake up, yeah, it's all going to yeah. be sorted. Don't worry about it, mate. Yeah, don't, we'll we'll take care of it. Uh, yeah, because I, I meet like the young people who are like getting into mm. mental health services, and then I think like, yeah, it's going to be good. But then would I have said the same thing about the people who were in charge now when they were young? They wanted to do all this stuff. Yeah, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how many of us are going to stay in the country. <laughs> Why would we? Yeah. Um, no, I feel like i got to go down with the ship, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, 
No, there, there are so many um, there are so many absolutely brilliant European people on my course, uh, mainland European people on my course who have had really wonderful conversations uh, with about Brexit and kind of how betrayed they feel and how hurt they are. You know, where would I stay? I feel betrayed and hurt, but I'm sure it's mm. not one-tenth as much as they do. I, I just can't believe we're allowing it to happen. Mm. I can't believe that there's people who are at the controls who know that they're just driving off the cliff and aren't going to stop from driving off the cliff. Yeah. Because there's no... There is no reason. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a political scientist, but there seems to me no reason to do it yeah. at whatsoever. Not just that, but catastrophic reasons. Catastrophic effects are going to occur from doing it. And we're the mad ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's why we don't understand. But... Um... Yeah, no, we're, you know, this is the counter-discourse, isn't it? The counter-discourse is, let's not drive off a cliff. Yeah, which um, seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, but we're outnumbered, <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going off the cliff. Are we, though? Because if they did another vote, surely these people would would realise by now. I don't know, man, my entire family's still pro-Brexit. Well, how, though? How? Because they... they Doesn't make any sense. They, first of all, when you say British Empire to them, their first thought isn't genocide. And, like, that's that's my first thought. Like, British Empire, what does that mean? Oh, we committed genocide in Ireland twice. We committed genocide in North America. We committed genocide all, just all over Africa and Asia. Like, we really... Yeah. Like we, we, we are responsible for America. Yeah. We, we were so, such a bunch of bastards, we drove them out yeah. to make a worse version. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, we rounded up all the poor on the streets and we shipped them over there and tried to force them to start mm. up colonies. And they had like a one in five chance of surviving after we dropped them off. Turns out beggars, not great farmers. Like urban beggars, <laughs> when when you, when you dump them in a completely untamed wilderness. Actually, calling it an untamed wilderness is nonsense. It was, it was pretty tamed um, when we got there. The Native Americans pretty much had that shit down. We just yeah. like to pretend it was untamed. Um, Maybe they thought beggars had transferable skills and... Yeah, I can see farming. the job job centre doing this. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, so you've been a beggar. Yeah. Maybe you'd be a good farmer. Exactly. Um, you've, you've been forced onto the streets for a variety of social reasons. Well, you were in luck because the migrant kind of underclass that we that we created and didn't pay a survivable wage. Um, we've now driven them off due to our catastrophic political decisions. So we're going back to having like a British underclass. Um, so. If you and your family could just like travel around the country doing seasonal work from now on, earning just enough to get by and uh, dying in droves, then you know that, that's pretty much the only way we're gonna get our courgettes picked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how do we round this off then? Did you want to talk about medication? There was something you were saying about how we uh, understand drugs is wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I already talked about it a little bit. It was it wasn't so much medication. It was more kind of recreational drugs is just this idea that when people are taking a bunch of them and then they go mad saying it's because of the drugs rather yeah, than well, it's because of the reasons they were doing the drugs yeah exactly and I think it's I think that's a bit stupid and and I think when a lot of the time when I talk to people about the reasons they were doing the drugs as well uh, not, not as in service users but kind of uh, as in you know other professionals um, what, what, there's professionals doing drugs no, <laughs> talking about people doing drugs. Oh, of course, there's professional. Of course, there's professionals doing yeah, drugs. That would like, explain a lot. Loads, loads of people do drugs. I can't. 
think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's not something people are willing to tell me. Yeah, I think I think quite often you say to somebody like, oh, this this person smoked a lot of weed and then they had a psychotic episode and um, and I think, you know, saying that the weed caused the psychotic episode is problematic because why were they smoking the weed? And, and sometimes you just get into this weird conversation where it's like, oh, so you think they were keeping the psychosis down with the weed? It's like no, no. I think I think they were probably really sad. Actually, mm-hmm. I think I mean they were probably really upset. I think their life wasn't very good, and I think that's why they were smoking on the weed. And I think the psychosis is maybe a manifestation of that sadness or that trauma. Or I, I like um, there's a, someone I really love on Twitter called uh, I'm going to absolutely bit butcher her name now, and I'm really sorry, but like Gwilane or Gwilan Kinawani. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and she talks about ontological trauma. Yeah. Yeah. This this idea of ontological trauma, just kind of the pain of being, and that's why someone was smoking. To me, like, it's it's obviously less straightforward than that. But that, that's why this guy was smoking loads of weed every day, and that's probably also why the guy went and had a bunch of unusual experiences that maybe made him feel powerful, or, you know, maybe made him feel like it was just something else for a little while, because... Mm, you know, just escape, isn't it? Yeah, people people want desperately to be something else. Like yeah. there, there are days, like, I, I think of myself as well, and we get all, all this lovely kind of interesting training on the course where that's like... You know, about self care and how to look at yourself and how to how to put up boundaries to make sure yeah. you know you can, you can get back home and you don't take your work home with you. Yeah, and it's like how can you not though? Well, how? Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like successfully managing this kind of work life balance. But I'm mad. I would desperately love to go home and be something else. I would more than anything else in the world. There are days where I would love to get in kick my shoes off, cuddle up, cuddle up with my uh, cat and be like, I'm not a mental health person anymore, but I'm mm. going to be a mental health person for the rest of my life. And, you know, it's a bit insulting, <laughs> actually, to, to say to me, yeah. like, you need to find a way to section this off. No pun intended. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's madness. It's all madness. We talk about things in such yeah. weird ways and they yeah. don't make any sense. Why do we do that? Makes us feel safe. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Makes us feel powerful. Like we're in control. We sa- we're willing to sacrifice pretty much everything to feel safe, aren't we? Whatever yeah. it is. Or, or just to feel like we know what's going on. Yeah. Which, yeah, I think in many ways is the same thing. These people should just go outside at night and look up and then say they know what's going on. Yeah. And they can see all the stars and stuff and say, oh yeah, I feel safe. We're just on this huge rock hurtling through the galaxy. Any moment now it could just crumble into dust if something happens we don't know about. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Just go and get in my car, drive to my job, everything's fine. May as well be nice to each other, right? Yeah, well, you know. I only get to do this once. (laughs) All right, should we leave it there then? Yeah, absolutely. Any final words? Words of advice? Words of advice. Words of wisdom? Yeah, don't listen to people like me. (laughs) No, it's been interesting. No, would it be all right if I said, uh, because people can't follow me on Twitter anymore. Why not? Because I tweet honestly. And uh, <laughs> and you, well, um, you don't want people to know. Well, we were warned at the very start of our course that this might be quite a dangerous thing for us to do. Why? Well, there's there is a good argument for it because if I'm if I'm sat around, um, you know, talking about madness and talking about things like this, um, and then somebody who's looking for help and maybe is going to be someone I'm going to be working with on placement has a little Google that could be pretty devastating to them if they've got quite fixed ideas about who should be doing this kind of work. You've got to meet people at their own speed, don't you? We talk a lot about kind of things like self-disclosure during therapy and things like this, and but there's always this, this question about, you know, who's that for? Well, obviously, I'm, I've got no idea what makes good therapy and what doesn't make good therapy. I'm, uh, I'm new to, to doing 
formal therapy, but one thing I do like to think of is just constantly asking yourself, who's this for? Because uh, I've, I've been sat in front of a therapist before and had it not for me. Uh, well, had what we were doing not be for me. And yeah, so... You tweet for you. Yeah. That's the thing. Absolutely. And you could always just start prefacing everything you say that might be seen as controversial in, in ways like, you know, somebody might think this. Or <laughs> you just write that. You've got the extra tweet limit now, you? so you can just say, like, if I was playing devil's advocate, I might say this. Yeah, could do that. And then you can just pretty much say anything you want. Yeah, I don't know how people can reach me, but if anyone wants to, maybe... Telepathy. Maybe... Telepathy, yeah. yeah no, uh, yeah, I never had that power, sadly. <laughs> Everyone else did, but yeah, no, that one passed me by. Done then. No, no. Yeah, right. maybe right. maybe if someone has a burning need to get hold of me, they could send you an email. <laughs> like... Yeah, people have sent emails in. It's been pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. well, if you're willing to do that, that would be... Very kind of you. I will, yeah. Okay, all right. That's it then. Thank you. This has nothing to do with coffee.